What up, brothers and sisters? Welcome. Welcome to the Dune Wave Audio Book Club. If you're locked in on the replay, if you're listening to this in the future, and you're eager to get to the story, a timestamp for the beginning of the set will be in the description of this broadcast. The rest of you are locked in live. Direct your energy in this area. Let's make this epic. Smash that like, share the link, gather the homies. It is Wednesday, it is time. Happy Dune Sember. Thank you, Robert Easley.
What's up, baby? How you doing? Welcome. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. What up, Luke? Appreciate you, baby. He says, love you all. Get your Iraq and Spice Lassies ready. Yes, you definitely should. It's Dune Samba. Dune Samba, and we're going in. Smash that like. Share that link. All we have is us. All we have is us. And that's a great deal. Praise the Lord. How's everyone doing out there? I hope you had a wonderful day. All the ducks are swimming in the water tonight, but that's right. Yes, they am. Yes, they am. Tryout says waiting for ACD to do the stream and it's still suit. Yeah, I'm saving up for him. Yeah, gotta preserve that blessed water. Oh, here's a lucky train. Choo choo. Here this morning. This morning was lit. This morning was powerful. What is that? We're about to go in. We've got a lot of story to uh, to get through, and it's getting very, very powerful here at the Dune Wave Audio Book Club. Shouts out to everyone who's invested in this thing. Who's excited? Who's excited for this thing? Jing on Jing on the saxophone there. Uh, in Akira the Dawn, hyper productivity news. I know you, I know you're all uh, excited and interested. Surely you are. Uh, so as you know, yesterday I finished stage one of February's album. Stage one is where I I lay out the record, I I arrange it, I write the choruses, I, I edit the uh, the vocals in the correct fashion. So yeah, I spent the past week or two, whatever it was, doing uh, stage one of the album that's coming out in February. The album that's coming out in January is already done in the system, so to speak. Well, today I was hit by an absolute uh, nuke of sort of creative superpowers and did 95% of stage one of March's album just now. And it's kind of weird because not only did I I do that, I actually started a whole other album this afternoon and I got quite deep into that very quickly. It was like quite dramatic. Then I realized, oh no, 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 that before this one, something else has to come first to kind of lay the ground for this one. So I stuck a pin in that one, you know, I'll come back to that one later. Did a whole other thing. And yeah, like 96% of stage one. Uh, anyway, after this, I'll go finish the rest of it and, uh, tomorrow, and so on and so forth. So yeah, hyper productivity increase. F zone inhabitation get deeper. Connection with uh, 5D space more pure. Uh, the conduit seems to be uh, have less blockages. You know, it seems to be a smoother journey. So that's pretty weird. Particularly because I was a little sad earlier. I got made a little sad, you know. 
I was, I was looking forward to this to today. There's a thing that happens every year, which is Spotify does a thing where uh, it kind of does a, hey, this was your year on Spotify, and this is all the music you listen to, and da da da. And uh, it was it was really great last year because you know last year it was like you're over over four thousand people had us as their as their most listened to artist. Everyone who had that was all sending messages, and it was this big buzz of activity of people being all excited. And I was like, this year is going to be crazy because we really nailed it this year. We've been doing. Uh, you know, just in the past month, over 175,000 people listening on Spotify. We've, we've now crossed 1.5 million uh, streams a month over there. It's like, this could be great. And then, uh, then I got the report thing. And the bit where it says, how many people have you as their, their most favorites? Uh, for this year, remember last year's was over 4,000. And we're 35, doing 35% better on Spotify than we were last year. Uh, thing says 63 Said, huh? And I only looked at this because I've been getting all these messages all morning from people saying, hey, uh, I only listen to you on Spotify and you're not on my Spotify. So this is crazy. I told my wife, she says, I'll go listen. Because literally all she listens to is is, uh, is Meaning Wave. And uh, a bit of aha, you know. She has a look, nothing. No Akira the Dawn song anywhere to be seen in her top songs of the year. And that's my wife. So I don't know what happened there. Um, <laughs> but it made me a bit sad. Um, and then it was like, oh yeah, then then I kind of worked it out. And I was like, oh look, see, that's an example. I keep thinking I've beaten them. I keep thinking I've got ridden of these areas. It's a lesson I keep being presented with. And it's the lesson of putting power uh, in something else. Like, you know, at one point it was like, I need a record deal. At then point it was, this thing's going to happen and that's going to make things work. And that's going to... and. It's this constant lesson of, of basically, you know, you have to not rely on anyone or anything. You just have to do it, you know. And, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit more than that, but, you know. But that little thing, this, because this idea that oh, Spotify, this big company, is going to send out all these notificationy things to all these people, and they're all going to send out a thing, and it's going to create this big sort of blossoming ripple of excitement, and that will be great. And, no, no, they're going to remove you from the lists. Because you're out there being useful in the world, or maybe it's just a technical glitch. I don't know. I don't know what's going on over there. And, uh, nor should I uh, bother myself with it, because it's one of those things that's outside the domain of uh, control, right? That's one of the things. You should not bother yourself with things outside the domain of your immediate control. And that thing right there is outside the domain of my immediate control. What's inside the domain of my immediate control is, uh, is keep making uh, increasingly great and useful music. And uh, showing up and doing that. And, uh, and coming down here and saying hi to you guys. What up, though? What up, though? So, yeah, I was a bit sad. <laughs> Uh, but then I got after it, you know, then I got after it, and then I got into into doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, then I was gifted, as a reward, I guess, for that, I was gifted essentially a whole album in in, in a in an hour or so, or something. The very, very quickest yet. I thought that Scott Adams one was, was fast in the delivery and the, the, the... Today's was crazy. Today's was like a download from, uh, from, from the downloading place, you know? Just like a... 
Uh, Red Dragon says, I'll send you a link to some of my discords. Your fans are probably better at marketing you by word of mouth. Probably. They ain't no probably. That, that is the facts. That's the facts. That's how this thing is where it is. That's how... Uh, that's that's what happened. Shouts out to all of you. God bless. And, uh, you know, it's a reminder... Who knows what's going on at the streaming platforms? Who knows who's running these things? So uh, vinyl, the vinyl operation is obviously very important. We need to do more of that. And uh, downloading things, I would say, is important. You don't know what's going to happen. Aside from the potentially violent sunspot activity that could wipe out every hard drive, you could just have some particularly violently ideologically possessed weirdo who happens to have control of a certain sector. And, uh, what do you do about that kind of natural disaster potential? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we got a Dune Club to get after. Uh, in order for us to get after our Dune Club, it is important. I mean, let me just back that up a bit. One of the things that made, like, I was getting all these messages of people who were, like, who were basically really sad because they were really excited to be able to have that bloody silly screenshot that says your number one artist is and be able to share that and all that. And it's like everyone was robbed of that. And it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing. But then, like I said, the lesson then is, like, you know, putting any kind of uh, energy or hope into those kind of things. I mean, what is that? That is the... The conjuring of an algorithmic uh, event from a company that has far too much of one's data with regards to something one truly, truly loves. It's very strange, isn't it? It's a very strange thing we do here at this particular juncture in the evolution of the human species. Anyway, God bless. We've got a dune wave to get after, a wave of dune. And uh, in order for us to get after the wave of dune, we have to first do the international high five. And for the international high five to go, uh, we have to ask the question. The question is, is this. Where on this sweet earth are you? And give us the Dune recap. We need the recap. We need the story so far. From you, the brave citizens of the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. What the blessed heck is water? Spencer's in Indianapolis. D-Man says good. Robert Easley says you are greater than those small-minded ingrates. Well, well, I mean, it might be that there are small-minded ingrates. It might be some glitch. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea, and uh, there's probably no way of finding out. My distributor has no idea. Um, someone over there said they'd had some weird issue with uh, with their. They said they think there's something something weird going on with Spotify. Their end of the year thing had their most favoriteest song being something they played once or something. So maybe just something's going on. They're doing a thing over at Spotify where they're ro rolling out some new thing wherein basically you have to pay to get uh, a bit like when Facebook suddenly started making you pay to reach your followers over there. Spotify seems to be doing something similar. I think they're calling it Marquee or something. And like, you have to basically agree for them to pay you way less of the 0 0.004 cent a stream they already pay you for them to show your stuff to people or something like that. 
And that sounds like a lot of work in the in the back end, you know. So maybe it was that. I don't know. Don't know. Members time says I just looked at mine and I'm crushed. You ain't on it, but I only discovered you two and a half months ago. Been playing it constantly since. Yeah, there you go. That'll do. Maybe. Hey. But then saying that, you know, I've got I've been getting messages from hundreds of people all day uh, who had us as their number one thing last year and have listened to nothing but Meaning Wave all year. And they've got stuff on their list that they don't know what it is, but they've got no uh, no Meaning Wave. My wife's top five, which had no Meaning Wave. The number five, she had no idea who it was and had no memory of ever listening to it. Yeah! D-Man! Says it's rigged, they're building cultures their way, going to the highest bidder. Zach Sowers of Boston, Massachusetts. Lots of intrigue. Ah, uh, here we go. This is what we're looking for. Yeah, let's. Never mind uh, that nonsense. Spencer, Indianapolis. Uh, Aesthetic86 says I'm new to Book Club, but this is why we need the recap for you. Cree says Yeet. Red Dragons is Matthew6. MC Photo Lounge, much love from Phoenix, Arizona, baby. Robert Easley, Chicago, and it's getting good. That's a recap. <laughs> Members time. I listen to more music than Spotify says I have. Sheila, Ferrera, Itra, Nashville, Duke's dead. The Baron lives. Muradib and Mama hiding in a tent. Hey. <laughs> Zach, sounds of Boston, Massachusetts. Lots of intrigue in the desert, along with epiphanies. Also, Fat Man being paranoid and perving on his nephew. Yo, that's real. DL says, banned by Spotify, Streisland effect in effect. What? Mount Faiso Lounge, I was very surprised that you are not on my top five artists as well. I listen to you almost every single day for the last two years. Aye, 207 K Stux 5, Indiana. Book recap Paul is in the desert awaiting his fate with the epic ancestors of MAZ, the Fremen. D Man, Tri State, the Baron's got a plan. Tryout, time to diversify your streaming services more. I literally am on all of them. Not quite sure how I could diversify more. Oh, you mean the listener? I don't know. YouTube Hero Alex, what would make me lean more towards a glitch slash paid promotion system taking effect? Member uh, Simon says Juice World was my number one. Top heart prayer heart. He was my second most influential artist this year besides you, Kira the Don. Uh, interesting that a lot of people uh, in their screenshots uh, previously when they were coming through had Juice World and Akira the Don connections. Interesting. Uh, rest in peace, Juice World. Ridiculously talented individual. Uh, people are always like. Oh, not always. Sometimes people are surprised that I love Juice World as much as I do. And uh, some people just never got to see uh, the breadth of the talent of Juice World. And I always say, go watch the uh, Westwood freestyle. The freestyles he did when he went to the UK, I think it was Westwood and I think it was on uh, Charlie Slough. He basically freestyled like two albums worth of material. Just off the top of his head. That kid was very, very special. And it's very sad that Big Pharma uh, killed him, you know? And uh, continue to not be held accountable, but the culture shifts and uh, God wins, you know? D-Man. 
our water just needs some more pressure and we can chisel mountains. That's a very good point. Cree says you're on platforms that I didn't even know existed pre-MAZ. Yeah, we everywhere, baby. We everywhere. Sheila Ferreira says, looking at my on repeat on Spotify, only one Akira on the list, and I've never heard any one of the other songs. <laughs> Bloody hell. What are they up to? D-Man. Mountain, Mountain. Jeffrey Wayne Hurt. Good evening from Louisville, Kentucky. Keeping it real here between Indy and Nashville. Where'd my music go? Uh, first time live listener. Really? Really? Oh my goodness. Well, welcome. Welcome. Wonderful to have you here. Uh, Shouts out to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, That's where Hunter S. Thompson did a lot of stomping, you know? I've always wanted to go there. Yo. All right, baby. International high five coming up in full effect, and then we're going straight into the wave of Dune. Whoa. Interesting if this was your first stream. The streams are so varied, you know? Oftentimes it's a big party. Oftentimes it's a disco. Oftentimes it's a big meaning wave uh, gig party. Today we're live scoring an audiobook. The breadth and the depth. Hey. Alrighty. Wow, you've never had an international high five. Amazing. Let's get it. Three, two, one. Hi. Hold it. Feel the force. That's the force, baby. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, you got it. Canada, a paradise world for our form of life. 
there existed no need on Caladan to build a physical paradise or a paradise of the mind. We could see the actuality all around us. And the price we paid was the price men have always paid for achieving a paradise in this life. We went soft. We lost our edge. From Muad'Dib, Conversations by the Princess Irulan. So you're the great Gurney Halleck, the man said. Halleck stood staring across the round cavern office at the smuggler seated behind a metal desk. The man wore Fremen robes and had the half-tint blue eyes that told of off-planet foods in his diet. The office duplicated a space frigate's master control center, communications and view screens along a 30-degree arc of wall, remote arming and firing banks adjoining, and the desk formed as a wall projection, part of the remaining curve. I am Staben Tuek, son of Esmar Tuek, the smuggler said. Then you're the one I owe thanks for the help we've received, Halleck said. Ah, gratitude, the smuggler said. Sit down. A ship-type bucket seat emerged from the wall beside the screens, and Halleck sank onto it with a sigh, feeling his weariness. He could see his own reflection now in a dark surface beside the smuggler and scowled at the lines of fatigue in his lumpy face. The ink-vine scar along his jaw writhed with the scowl. Halleck turned from his reflection, stared at Tuick. He saw the family resemblance in the smuggler now, the father's heavy overhanging eyebrows and rock planes of cheeks and nose. Your men tell me your father is dead, killed by the Harkonnens, Halleck said. By the Harkonnens or by a traitor among your people, Tuick said. Anger overcame part of Halleck's fatigue. He straightened, said, Can you name the traitor? We're not sure. Thufir Hawat suspected the Lady Jessica. Ah, the Bene Gesserit witch, perhaps. But Hawat is now a Harkonnen captive. I heard. Halleck took a deep breath. It appears we've a deal more killing ahead of us. We will do nothing to attract attention to us, Tuek said. Halleck stiffened. But you and those of your men we've saved are welcome to sanctuary among us, Tuek said. You speak of gratitude very well. Work off your debt to us. We can always use good men. We'll destroy you out of hand, though, if you make the slightest open move against the Harkonnens. But they killed your father, man. Perhaps. And if so, I'll give you my father's answer to those who act without thinking. A stone is heavy and the sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. You mean to do nothing about it, then? Halleck sneered. You did not hear me say that. I merely say I will protect our contract with the Guild. The Guild requires that we play a circumspect game. There are other ways of destroying a foe. Ah. Ah, indeed. If you've a mind to seek out the Witch, have at it. But I warn you that you're probably too late. And we doubt she's the one you want, anyway. Howard made few mistakes. He allowed himself to fall into Harkonnen hands. You think he's the traitor? Tuek shrugged. This is academic. We think the witch is dead. At least the Harkonnens believe it. You seem to know a great deal about the Harkonnens. Hints and suggestions. Rumors and hunches. We are 74 men, Halleck said. If you seriously wish us to enlist with you, you must believe our duke is dead. His body has been seen. 
and the boy too. Young Master Paul. Halleck tried to swallow, found a lump in his throat. According to the last word we had, he was lost with his mother in a desert storm. Likely not even their bones will ever be found. So, the witch is dead then. All dead. Tuek nodded. And Beast Raban, so they say, will sit once more in the seat of power here on Dune. The Count Raban of Lankavale? Yes. It took Halleck a moment to put down the upsurge of rage that threatened to overcome him. He spoke with panting breath. I have a score of my own against Raban. I owe him for the lives of my family. He rubbed at the scar along his jaw, and for this. One does not risk everything to settle a score prematurely, Tuex said. He frowned, watching the play of muscles along Halleck's jaw, the sudden withdrawal in the man's shed-lidded eyes. I know. I know. Halleck took a deep breath. You and your men can work out your passage off Arrakis by serving with us. There are many places to... I release my men from any bond to me. They can choose for themselves. With Raban here, I stay. In your mood, I'm not sure we want you to stay. Halleck stared at the smuggler. You doubt my word? No. You've saved me from the Harkonnens. I gave loyalty to the Duke Leto for no greater reason. I'll stay on Arrakis with you or with the Fremen. Whether a thought is spoken or not, it is a real thing, and it has power, Tuek said. You might find the line between life and death among the Fremen to be too sharp and quick. Halleck closed his eyes briefly, feeling the weariness surge up in him. Where is the Lord who led us through the land of deserts and of pits? He murmured. Move slowly, and the day of your revenge will come, Tuek said. Speed is a device of Shaitan. Cool your sorrow. We've the diversions for it. Three things there are that ease the heart. Water, green grass, and the beauty of woman. Halleck opened his eyes. I would prefer the blood of Rabban Harkonnen flowing about my feet. He stared at Tuek. You think that day will come? I have little to do with how you'll meet tomorrow, Gurney Halleck. I can only help you meet today. Then I'll accept that help. And stay until the day you tell me to revenge your father and all the others who... Listen to me, fighting man, Tuek said. He leaned forward over his desk, his shoulders level with his ears, eyes intent. The smuggler's face was suddenly like weathered stone. My father's water. I'll buy that back myself, with my own blade. Halleck stared back at Tuek. In that moment, the smuggler reminded him of Duke Leto, a leader of men, courageous, secure in his own position and his own course. He was like the Duke, before Arrakis. Do you wish my blade beside you? Halleck asked. Tuek sat back, relaxed, studying Halleck silently. Do you think of me as fighting man? Halleck pressed. You're the only one of the Duke's lieutenants to escape, Tuek said. Your enemy was overwhelming, yet you rolled with him. You defeated him the way we defeat Arrakis. Eh? 
We live on sufferance down here, Gurney Halleck. To accept. Arrakis is our enemy. One enemy at a time, is that it? That's it. Is that the way the Fremen make out? Perhaps. You said I might find life with the Fremen too tough. They live in the desert in the open. Is that why? Who knows where the Fremen live? For us, the central plateau is a no-man's land. But I wish to talk more about... I'm told that the guild seldom roots spice lighters in over the desert, Halleck said. But there are rumors that you can see bits of greenery here and there if you know where to look. Rumors, Tuek sneered. Do you wish to choose now between me and the Fremen? We have a measure of security, our own sietch carved out of the rock, our own hidden basins. We live the lives of civilized men. The Fremen are a few ragged bands that we use as spice hunters. But they can kill Harkonnens. And do you wish to know the result? Even now they are being hunted down like animals with laser guns. Because they have no shields, they are being exterminated. Why? Because they killed Harkonnens. Was it Harkonnens they killed? Halleck asked. What do you mean? Haven't you heard that there may have been Sardaukar with the Harkonnens? More rumors. But a pogrom, that isn't like the Harkonnens. A pogrom is wasteful. I believe what I see with my own eyes, Tuak said. Make your choice, fighting man, me or the Fremen. I will promise you sanctuary and a chance to draw the blood we both want. Be sure of that. The Fremen will offer you only the life of the hunted. Halleck hesitated, sensing wisdom and sympathy in Tuak's words, yet troubled for no reason he could explain. Trust your own abilities, Tuak said. Whose decisions brought your force through the battle? Yours. Decide. It must be, Halleck said. The Duke and his son are dead? The Harkonnens believe it. Where such things are concerned, I incline to trust the Harkonnens. A grim smile touched Tuek's mouth. But it's about the only trust I give them. Then it must be, Halleck repeated. He held out his right hand, palm up and thumb folded flat against it in the traditional gesture. I give you my sword. Accept it. Do you wish me to persuade my men? You'd let them make their own decision? They've followed me this far, but most are Caladan born. Arrakis isn't what they thought it would be. Here, they've lost everything except their lives. I'd prefer they decided for themselves now. Now is no time for you to fault, Tuek said. They've followed you this far. You need them, is that it? We can always use experienced fighting men, in these times more than ever. You've accepted my sword. Do you wish me to persuade them? I think they'll follow you, Gurney Halleck. Tis to be hoped. Indeed. I may make my own decision in this, then? Your own decision. Halleck pushed himself up from the bucket seat, feeling how much of his reserve strength even that small effort required. For now, I'll see to their quarters and well-being, he said. Consult my quartermaster, Tuak said. Drisk is his name. Tell him it's my wish that you receive every courtesy. I'll join you myself presently. I've some off-shipments of spice to see to first. Fortune passes everywhere, Halleck said. Everywhere, Tuak said. A time of upset is a rare opportunity for our business. Halleck nodded heard the faint susurration and felt the air shift as a lock port swung open beside him. He turned, ducked through it, 
and out of the office. He found himself in the assembly hall through which he and his men had been led by two ex-aides. It was a long, fairly narrow area, chewed out of the native rock, its smooth surface betraying the use of cut-array burners for the job. The ceiling stretched away high enough to continue the natural supporting curve of the rock and to permit internal air convection currents. Weapons racks and lockers lined the walls. Halleck noted with a touch of pride that those of his men still able to stand were standing. No relaxation and weariness and defeat for them. Smuggler medics were moving among them, tending the wounded. Litter cases were assembled in one area down to the left, each wounded man with an Atreides companion. The Atreides training, we care for our own. It held like a core of native rock in them, Halleck noted. One of his lieutenants stepped forward, carrying Halleck's nine-string ballast out of its case. The man snapped a salute, said, Sir, the medics here say there's no hope for Matai. They have no bone and organ banks here, only outpost medicine. Matai can't last, they say, and he has a request of you. What is it? The lieutenant thrust the ballast forward. Matai wants a song to ease his going, sir. He says you'll know the one. He's asked it of you often enough. The lieutenant swallowed. It's the one called My Woman, sir. If you... I know. Halleck took the ballast, flicked the multipick out of its catch on the fingerboard. He drew a soft cord from the instrument, found that someone had already tuned it. There was a burning in his eyes, but he drove that out of his thoughts as he strolled forward, strumming the tune, forcing himself to smile casually. Several of his men and a smuggler medic were bent over one of the litters, one of the men began singing softly as Halleck approached, catching the counterbeat with the ease of long familiarity. My woman stands at her window, curved lines against square glass, upraised arms bent down folded, against sunset red and golden. Come to me, come to me, warm arms of my lass, for me, for me. The warm arms of my lass. The singer stopped, reached out a bandaged arm, and closed the eyelids of the man on the litter. Halleck drew a final soft cord from the ballast, thinking, Now we are 73. Family life of the royal creche is difficult for many people to understand, but I shall try to give you a capsule view of it. My father had only one real friend, I think. That was Count Hasimir Fenring, the genetic eunuch, and one of the deadliest fighters in the Imperium. The Count, a dapper and ugly little man, brought a new slave concubine to my father one day, and I was dispatched by my mother to spy on the proceedings. All of us spied on my father as a matter of self-protection. One of the slave concubines permitted my father under the Bene Gesserit Guild agreement could not, of course, bear a royal successor. But the intrigues were constant and oppressive in their similarity. We became adept, my mother and sisters and I, at avoiding subtle instruments of death. It may seem a dreadful thing to say, but I'm not at all sure my father was innocent in all these attempts. A royal family is not like other families. 
Here was a new slave concubine then, red-haired like my father, willowy and graceful. She had a dancer's muscles, and her training obviously had included neuro-enticement. My father looked at her for a long time as she postured unclothed before him. Finally, he said, she is too beautiful. We will save her as a gift. You have no idea how much consternation this restraint created in the royal creche. Subtlety and self-control were, after all, the most deadly threats to us all. In my father's house by the Princess Irulan. Paul stood outside the still tent in the late afternoon. The crevasse where he had pitched their camp lay in deep shadow. He stared out across the open sand at the distant cliff, wondering if he should waken his mother who lay asleep in the tent. Folds upon folds of dunes spread beyond their shelter. Away from the setting sun, the dunes exposed greased shadows so black they were like bits of night. And the flatness. His mind searched for something tall in that landscape. But there was no persuading tallness out of heat-addled air and that horizon. No bloom or gently shaken thing to mark the passage of a breeze. Only dunes and that distant cliff beneath a sky of burnished silver blue. What if there isn't one of the abandoned testing stations across there, he wondered. What if there are no Fremen either, and the plants we see are only an accident? Within the tent, Jessica awakened, turned onto her back and peered sidelong out the transparent end at Paul. He stood with his back to her and something about his stance reminded her of his father. She sensed the well of grief rising within her and turned away. Presently, she adjusted her still suit refreshed herself with water from the tent's catch pocket, and slipped out to stand and stretch the sleep from her muscles. Paul spoke without turning. I find myself enjoying the quiet here. How the mind gears itself for its environment, she thought. And she recalled the Bene Gesserit axiom. The mind can go either direction under stress, toward positive or toward negative on or off. Think of it as a spectrum whose extremes are unconsciousness at the negative end and hyperconsciousness at the positive end. The way the mind will lean under stress is strongly influenced by training. It could be a good life here, Paul said. She tried to see the desert through his eyes seeking to encompass all the rigors this planet accepted as commonplace, wondering at the possible futures Paul had glimpsed. One could be alone out here, she thought, without fear of someone behind you, without fear of the hunter. She stepped past Paul, lifted her binoculars, adjusted the oil lenses, and studied the escarpment across from them. Yes, saguaro and the arroyos, another spiny growth, and a matting of low grasses yellow-green in the shadows. I'll strike camp, Paul said. Jessica nodded, walked to the fissure's mouth where she could get a sweep of the desert, and swung her binoculars to the left. A salt pan glared white there with a blending of dirty tan at its edges. 
a field of white out here where white was death. But the pan said another thing, water. At some time, water had flowed across that glaring white. She lowered her binoculars, adjusted her burnous, listened for a moment to the sound of Paul's movements. The sun dipped lower. Shadows stretched across the salt pan. Lines of wild color spread over the sunset horizon. Color streamed into a toe of darkness testing the sand. Coal-colored shadows spread, and the thick collapse of night blotted the desert. Stars. She stared up at them, sensing Paul's movements as he came up beside her. The desert night focused upward with a feeling of lift toward the stars. The weight of the day receded. There came a brief flurry of breeze across her face. The first moon will be up soon, Paul said. The pack's ready. I've planted the thumper. We could be lost forever in this hell place, she thought, and no one to know. The night wind spread sand runnels that grated across her face, bringing the smell of cinnamon. A shower of odors in the dark. Smell that, Paul said. I can smell it even through the filter, she said. Riches. But will it buy water? She pointed across the basin. There are no artificial lights across there. Fremen would be hidden in a sietch behind those rocks, he said. A sill of silver pushed above the horizon to their right, the first moon. It lifted into view, the hand pattern plain on its face. Jessica studied the white silver of sand exposed in the light. I planted the thumper in the deepest part of the crevasse, Paul said. Whenever I light its candle, It'll give us about 30 minutes. 30 minutes? Before it starts calling a worm. Oh, I'm ready to go. He slipped away from her side and she heard his progress back up their fissure. The night is a tunnel, she thought, a hole into tomorrow. If we're to have a tomorrow. She shook her head. Why must I be so morbid? I was trained better than that. Paul returned, took up the pack, led the way down to the first spreading dune where he stopped and listened as his mother came up behind him. He heard her soft progress and the cold single-grain dribbles of sound, the desert's own code spelling out its measure of safety. We must walk without rhythm, Paul said, and he called up memory of men walking the sand, both prescient memory and real memory. Watch how I do it, he said. This is how Fremen walk the sand. He stepped out onto the windward face of the dune, following the curve of it, moved with a dragging pace. Jessica studied his progress for ten steps, followed, imitating him. She saw the sense of it. They must sound like the natural shifting of sand, like the wind. But muscles protested this unnatural, broken pattern. Step, drag, drag. Step, step, wait. Drag, step. Time stretched out around them. The rock face ahead seemed to grow no nearer. The one behind still towered high. Lump, 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 lump. It was a drumming from the cliff behind. The thumper, Paul hissed. Its pounding continued, and they found difficulty avoiding the rhythm of it in their stride. Lump, 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 lump. 
They moved in a moonlit bowl, punctured by that hollowed thumping. Down and up through spilling dunes, step, drag, wait, step. Across pea sand that rolled under their feet, drag, wait, step. And all the while their ears searched for a special hissing. The sound, when it came, started so low that their own dragging passage masked it. But it grew louder and louder out of the west. Lump, 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 drummed the thumper. The hissing approach spread across the night behind them. They turned their heads as they walked, saw the mound of the coursing worm. Keep moving, Paul whispered. Don't look back. A grating sound of fury exploded from the rock shadows they had left. It was a flailing avalanche of noise. Keep moving, Paul repeated. He saw that they had reached an unmarked point where the two rock faces, the one ahead and the one behind, appeared equally remote. And still behind them, that whipping, frenzied tearing of rocks dominated the night. They moved on and on and on. Muscles reached a stage of mechanical aching that seemed to stretch out indefinitely. But Paul saw that the beckoning escarpment ahead of them had climbed higher. Jessica moved in a void of concentration aware that the pressure of her will alone kept her walking. Dryness ached in her mouth, but the sounds behind drove away all hope of stopping for a sip from her stillsuit's catch pockets. Lump, lump. Renewed frenzy erupted from the distant cliff, drowning out the thumper. Silence. Faster, Paul whispered. She nodded, knowing he did not see the gesture, but needing the action to tell herself that it was necessary to demand even more from muscles that already were being taxed to their limits. The unnatural movement. The rock face of safety ahead of them climbed into the stars, and Paul saw a plain of flat sand stretching out at the base. He stepped onto it, stumbled in his fatigue, righted himself with an involuntary outthrusting of a foot. Resonant booming shook the sand around them. Paul lurched sideways two steps. Boom, boom, drum sand, Jessica hissed. Paul recovered his balance. A sweeping glance took in the sand around them, the rock escarpment perhaps 200 meters away. Behind them, he heard a hissing, like the wind, like a riptide where there was no water. Run, Jessica screamed. Paul, run. They ran. Drum sound boomed beneath their feet. Then they were out of it and into pea gravel. For a time, the running was a relief to muscles that ached from unfamiliar, rhythmless use. Here was action that could be understood. Here was rhythm. But sand and gravel dragged at their feet, and the hissing approach of the worm was storm sound that grew around them. Jessica stumbled to her knees. All she could think of was the fatigue and the sound and the terror. Paul dragged her up. They ran on, hand in hand. A thin pole jutted from the sand ahead of them. They passed it, saw another. Jessica's mind failed to register on the poles until they were passed. There was another. Wind-etched surface thrust up from a crack in rock. Another. Rock. She felt it through her feet. The shock of unresisting surface gained new strength from the firmer footing. A deep crack stretched its vertical shadow upward into the cliff ahead of them. They sprinted for it, crowded into the narrow hole. Behind them, the sound of the worm's passage stopped. Jessica and Paul turned, peered out onto the desert. Where the dunes began, perhaps 50 meters away at the foot of a rock beach, a silver-gray curve broached from the desert, sending rivers of sand and dust cascading all around. 
It lifted higher, resolved into a giant, questing mouth. It was a round, black hole with edges glistening in the moonlight. The mouth snaked toward the narrow crack where Paul and Jessica huddled. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. Moonlight flashed from crystal teeth. Back and forth, the great mouth wove. Paul stilled his breathing. Jessica crouched, staring. It took intense concentration of her Bene Gesserit training to put down the primal terrors, subduing a race memory fear that threatened to fill her mind. Paul felt a kind of elation. In some recent instant, he had crossed a time barrier into more unknown territory. He could sense the darkness ahead, nothing revealed to his inner eye. It was as though some step he had taken had plunged him into a well or into the trough of a wave where the future was invisible. The landscape had undergone a profound shifting. Instead of frightening him, the sensation of time darkness forced a hyper-acceleration of his other senses. He found himself registering every available aspect of the thing that lifted from the sand there seeking him. Its mouth was some 80 meters in diameter. Crystal teeth with the curved shape of Chris knives glinting around the rim. The bellows breath of cinnamon, subtle aldehydes, acids. The worm blotted out the moonlight as it brushed the rocks above them. A shower of small stones and sand cascaded into the narrow hiding place. Paul crowded his mother farther back. Cinnamon. The smell of it flooded across him. What has the worm to do with the spice melange? He asked himself. And he remembered Liet Kine betraying a veiled reference to some association between worm and spice. Baroom! It was like a peal of dry thunder coming from far off to their right. Again, Baroom! The worm drew back onto the sand, lay there momentarily, its crystal teeth weaving moon flashes. Lump, 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 lump. Another thumper, Paul thought. Again it sounded off to their right. A shudder passed through the worm. It drew farther away into the sand. Only a mounded upper curve remained like half a bell mouth, the curve of a tunnel rearing above the dunes. Sand rasped. The creature sank farther, retreating, turning. It became a mound of crusting sand that curved away through a saddle in the dunes. Paul stepped out of the crack, watched the sand wave recede across the waste toward the new thumper summons. Jessica followed, listening. Lump, 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 lump. Presently, the sound stopped. Paul found the tube into his stillsuit, sipped at the reclaimed water. Jessica focused on his action, but her mind felt blank with fatigue and the aftermath of terror. Has it gone for sure? She whispered. Somebody called it, Paul said. Fremen. She felt herself recovering. It was so big. Not as big as the one that got our thopter. Are you sure it was Fremen? They used a thumper. Why would they help us? Maybe they weren't helping us. Maybe they were just calling a worm. Why? An answer lay poised at the edge of his awareness, but refused to come. He had a vision in his mind of something to do with the telescoping barbed sticks in their packs, 
the maker hooks. Why would they call a worm? Jessica asked. A breath of fear touched his mind, and he forced himself to turn away from his mother to look up the cliff. We'd better find a way up there before daylight, he pointed. Those poles we passed, there are more of them. She looked, following the line of his hand, saw the poles, wind-scratched markers made out the shadow of a narrow ledge that twisted into a crevasse high above them. They mark a way up the cliff, Paul said. He settled his shoulders into the pack, crossed to the foot of the ledge and began the climb upward. Jessica waited a moment, resting, restoring her strength. Then she followed. Up they climbed, following the guide poles until the ledge dwindled to a narrow lip at the mouth of a dark crevasse. Paul tipped his head to peer into the shadowed place. He could feel the precarious hold his feet had on the slender ledge, but forced himself to slow caution. He saw only darkness within the crevasse. It stretched away upward, open to the stars at the top. His ears searched, found only sounds he could expect. A tiny spill of sand, an insect brr, the patter of a small running creature. He tested the darkness in the crevasse with one foot, found rock beneath a gritting surface. Slowly, he inched around the corner, signaled for his mother to follow. He grasped a loose edge of her robe, helped her around. They looked upward at starlight framed by two rock lips. Paul saw his mother beside him as a cloudy gray movement. If we could only risk a light, he whispered. We have other senses than eyes, she said. Paul slid a foot forward, shifted his weight, and probed with the other foot, met an obstruction. He lifted his foot, found a step, pulled himself up onto it. He reached back, felt his mother's arm, tugged at her robe for her to follow. Another step. It goes on up to the top, I think, he whispered. Shallow and even steps, Jessica thought, man-carved, beyond a doubt. She followed the shadowy movement of Paul's progress, feeling out the steps. Rock walls narrowed until her shoulders almost brushed them. The steps ended in a slitted defile about 20 meters long, its floor level, and this opened onto a shallow, moonlit basin. Paul stepped out into the rim of the basin, whispered, what a beautiful place. Jessica could only stare in silent agreement from her position a step behind him. In spite of weariness, the irritation of recaths and nose plugs and the confinement of the still suit, in spite of fear and the aching desire for rest, this basin's beauty filled her senses, forcing her to stop and admire it. Like a fairyland, Paul whispered. Jessica nodded. Spreading away in front of her stretched desert growth, bushes, cacti, tiny clumps of leaves, all trembling in the moonlight. The ring walls were dark to her left, moon-frosted on her right. This must be a Fremen place, Paul said. There would have to be people for this many plants to survive, she agreed. She uncapped the tube to her still suit's catch pockets, sipped at it. 
warm, faintly acrid wetness slipped down her throat. She marked how it refreshed her. The tube's cap grated against flakes of sand as she replaced it. Movement caught Paul's attention, to his right and down on the basin floor curving up beneath him. He stared down through smoke bushes and weeds into a wedged slab sand surface of moonlight inhabited by an up-hop, jump, pop-hop of tiny motion. Mice, he hissed. Pop, up, up, they went into shadows and out. Something fell soundlessly past their eyes into the mice. There came a thin screech, a flapping of wings, and a ghostly gray bird lifted away across the basin with a small dark shadow in its talons. We needed that reminder, Jessica thought. Paul continued to stare across the basin. He inhaled, sensed the softly cutting contralto smell of sage climbing the night. The predatory bird, he thought of it as the way of this desert. It had brought a stillness to the basin so unuttered that the blue milk moonlight could almost be heard flowing across sentinel saguaro and spiked paintbrush. There was a low humming of light here, more basic in its harmony than any other music in his universe. We'd better find a place to pitch the tent, he said. Tomorrow we can try to find the Fremen who... Most intruders here regret finding the Fremen. It was a heavy masculine voice, chopping across his words, shattering the moment. The voice came from above them and to their right. Please do not run, intruders, the voice said as Paul made to withdraw into the defile. If you run, you'll only waste your body's water. They want us for the water of our flesh, Jessica thought. Her muscles overrode all fatigue, flowed into maximum readiness without external betrayal. She pinpointed the location of the voice, thinking, such stealth, I didn't hear him. And she realized that the owner of that voice had permitted himself only the small sounds, the natural sounds of the desert. Another voice called from the basin's rim to their left, make it quick still, get their water and let's be on our way, we've little enough time before dawn. Paul, less conditioned to emergency response than his mother, felt chagrined that he had stiffened and tried to withdraw, that he had clouded his abilities by a momentary panic. He forced himself now to obey her teachings, relax, then fall into the semblance of relaxation, then into the arrested whip-snap of muscles that can slash in any direction. Still he felt the edge of fear within him and knew its source. This was blind time, no future he had seen. And they were caught between wild Fremen, whose only interest was the water carried in the flesh of two unshielded bodies. This Fremen religious adaptation, then, is the source of what we now recognize as the pillars of the universe whose Kizara Tafwid are among us all with signs and proofs and prophecy. They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion whose profound beauty is typified by the stirring music built on the old forms but stamped with a new awakening. Who has not heard and been deeply moved by the old man's hymn? I drove my feet through a desert whose mirage fluttered like a host, voracious for glory, greedy for danger, I roamed the horizons of Al-Kulab, 
watching time level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrows swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches and was caught on their beaks and claws. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. The man crawled across a dune top. He was a moat, caught in the glare of the noon sun. He was dressed only in torn remnants of a Jabba cloak, his skin bare to the heat through the tatters. The hood had been ripped from the cloak, but the man had fashioned a turban from a torn strip of cloth. Wisps of sandy hair protruded from it, matched by a sparse beard and thick brows. Beneath the blue-within-blue eyes, remains of a dark stain spread down to his cheeks. A matted depression across moustache and beard showed where a still-suit tube had marked out its path from nose to catch pockets. The man stopped half across the dune crest, arms stretched down the slip face. Blood had clotted on his back and on his arms and legs. Patches of yellow-gray sand clung to the wounds. Slowly, he brought his hands under him, pushed himself to his feet, stood there swaying. And even in this almost random action, there remained a trace of once precise movement. I am Liet Kynes, he said, addressing himself to the empty horizon, and his voice was a hoarse caricature of the strength it had known. I am His Imperial Majesty's planetologist, he whispered, planetary ecologist for Arrakis. I am steward of this land. He stumbled, fell sideways along the crusty surface of the windward face. His hands dug feebly into the sand. I am steward of this sand, he thought. He realized that he was semi-delirious, that he should dig himself into the sand, find the relatively cool underlayer, and cover himself with it but he could still smell the rank, semi-sweet esters of a pre-spice pocket somewhere underneath this sand. He knew the peril within this fact more certainly than any other Fremen. If he could smell the pre-spice mass, that meant the gases deep under the sand were nearing explosive pressure. He had to get away from here. His hands made weak, scrabbling motions along the dune face. A thought spread across his mind, clear, distinct, the real wealth of a planet is in its landscape, how we take part in that basic source of civilization, agriculture. And he thought how strange it was that the mind, long fixed on a single track, could not get off that track. The Harkonnen troopers had left him here without water or stillsuit, thinking a worm would get him if the desert didn't. They had thought it amusing to leave him alive, to die by inches at the impersonal hands of his planet. Conans always did find it difficult to kill Fremen, he thought. We don't die easily. I should be dead now. I will be dead soon, but I can't stop being an ecologist. The highest function of ecology is understanding consequences. The voice shocked him because he recognized it and knew the owner of it was dead. It was the voice of his father who had been planetologist here before him. His father long dead, killed in the cave-in at Plaster Basin. Got yourself into quite a fix here, son, his father said. 
You should have known the consequences of trying to help the child of that duke. I'm delirious, Kynes thought. The voice seemed to come from his right. Kynes scraped his face through sand, turning to look in that direction, nothing except a curving stretch of dune dancing with heat devils in the full glare of the sun. The more life there is within a system, the more niches there are for life, his father said. And the voice came now from his left, from behind him. Why does he keep moving around? Kynes asked himself. Doesn't he want me to see him? Life improves the capacity of the environment to sustain life, his father said. Life makes needed nutrients more readily available. It binds more energy into the system through the tremendous chemical interplay from organism to organism. Why does he keep harping on the same subject? Kynes asked himself. I knew that before I was ten. Desert hawks, carrion eaters in this land, as were most wild creatures, began to circle over him. Kynes saw a shadow pass near his hand, forced his head farther around to look upward. The birds were a blurred patch on silver-blue sky, distant flecks of soot floating above him. We are generalists, his father said. You can't draw neat lines around planet-wide problems. Planetology is a cut-and-fit science. What's he trying to tell me? Kynes wondered. Is there some consequence I fail to see? His cheek slumped back against the hot sand, and he smelled the burned rock odor beneath the pre-spice gases. From some corner of logic in his mind, a thought formed. Those are carrion-eater birds over me. Perhaps some of my Fremen will see them and come to investigate. To the working planetologist, his most important tool is human beings, his father said. You must cultivate ecological literacy among the people. That's why I've created this entirely new form of ecological notation. He's repeating things he said to me when I was a child, Kynes thought. He began to feel cool, but that corner of logic in his mind told him, the sun is overhead, you have no steel suit in your heart, the sun is burning the moisture out of your body. His fingers clawed feebly at the sand. They couldn't even leave me a still suit. The presence of moisture in the air helps prevent too rapid evaporation from living bodies, his father said. Why does he keep repeating the obvious? Kynes wondered. He tried to think of moisture in the air, grass covering this dune, open water somewhere beneath him, a long cannot flowing with water open to the sky except in text illustrations. Open water, irrigation water. It took 5,000 cubic meters of water to irrigate one hectare of land per growing season, he remembered. Our first goal on Arrakis, his father said, is grassland provinces. We will start with these mutated poverty grasses. When we have moisture locked in grasslands, we'll move on to start upland forests. Then a few open bodies of water, small at first, and situated along lines of prevailing winds with wind-trap moisture precipitators spaced in the lines to recapture what the wind steals. We must create a true Sirocco, a moist wind, but we will never get away from the necessity for wind-traps. Always lecturing me, Kynes thought. Why doesn't he shut up? Can't he see I'm dying? You will die, too, his father said, if you don't get off the bubble that's forming right now deep underneath you. 
It's there and you know it. You can smell the pre-spice gases. You know the little makers are beginning to lose some of their water into the mass. The thought of that water beneath him was maddening. He imagined it now, sealed off in strata of porous rock by the leathery half-plant, half-animal little makers. And the thin rupture that was pouring a cool stream of clearest pure liquid soothing water into a pre-spice mass. He inhaled, smelling the rank sweetness. The odor was much richer around him than it had been. Kynes pushed himself to his knees, heard a bird screech, the hurried flapping of wings. This is spice desert, he thought. There must be Fremen about even in the day sun. Surely they can see the birds and will investigate. Movement across the landscape is a necessity for animal life, his father said. Nomad peoples follow the same necessity. Lines of movement adjust to physical needs for water, food, minerals. We must control this movement now, align it for our purposes. Shut up, old man, Kynes muttered. We must do a thing on Arrakis never before attempted for an entire planet, his father said. We must use man as a constructive ecological force, inserting adapted terraform life, a plant here, an animal there, a man in that place, to transform the water cycle, to build a new kind of landscape. Shut up, Kynes croaked. It was lines of movement that gave us the first clue to the relationship between worms and spice, his father said. A worm, Kynes thought with a surge of hope. A maker's sure to come when this bubble bursts. But I have no hooks. How can I mount a big maker without hooks? He could feel frustration sapping what little strength remained to him. Water so near, only a hundred meters or so beneath him. A worm sure to come, but no way to trap it on the surface and use it. Kynes pitched forward onto the sand, returning to the shallow depression his movements had defined. He felt sand hot against his left cheek, but the sensation was remote. The Arakeen environment built itself into the evolutionary pattern of native life forms, his father said. How strange that so few people ever looked up from the spice long enough to wonder at the near-ideal nitrogen-oxygen-CO2 balance being maintained here in the absence of large areas of plant cover. The energy sphere of the planet is there to see and understand. A relentless process, but a process nonetheless. There is a gap in it, then something occupies that gap. Science is made up of so many things that appear obvious after they are explained. I knew the little maker was there deep in the sand long before I ever saw it. Please stop lecturing me, father, Kynes whispered. A hawk landed on the sand near his outstretched hand. Kynes saw it fold its wings, tip its head to stare at him. He summoned the energy to croak at it. The bird hopped away two steps, but continued to stare at him. Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planets before now, his father said. Nature tends to compensate for diseases, to remove or encapsulate them, to incorporate them into the system in her own way. The hawk lowered its head, stretched its wings, refolded them. It transferred its attention to his outstretched hand. Kynes found that he no longer had the strength to croak at it. The historical system of mutual pillage and extortion stops here on Arrakis, his father said. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard to those who come after. 
the physical qualities of a planet are written into its economic and political record. We have the record in front of us, and our course is obvious. He never could stop lecturing, Kynes thought. Lecturing, lecturing, lecturing. Always lecturing. The hawk hopped one step closer to Kynes' outstretched hand, turned his head first one way and then the other to study the exposed flesh. Arrakis is a one-crop planet, his father said. One crop. It supports a ruling class that lives as ruling classes have lived in all times, while beneath them a semi-human mass of semi-slaves exists on the leavings. It's the masses and the leavings that occupy our attention. These are far more valuable than has ever been suspected. I'm ignoring you, father, Kynes whispered. Go away. And he thought, surely there must be some of my Fremen near. They cannot help but see the birds over me. They will investigate if only to see if there's moisture available. The masses of Arrakis will know that we work to make the land flow with water, his father said. Most of them, of course, will have only a semi-mystical understanding of how we intend to do this. Many not understanding the prohibitive mass ratio problem may even think we'll bring water from some other planet rich in it. Let them think anything they wish, as long as they believe in us. In a minute I'll get up and tell him what I think of him, Kynes thought, standing there lecturing me when he should be helping me. The bird took another hop closer to Kynes' outstretched hand. Two more hawks drifted down to the sand behind it. Religion and law among our masses must be one and the same, his father said. An act of disobedience must be a sin and require religious penalties. This will have the dual benefit of bringing both greater obedience and greater bravery. We must depend not so much on the bravery of individuals, you see, as upon the bravery of a whole population. Where is my population now when I need it most? Kynes thought. He summoned all his strength, moved his hand a finger's width toward the nearest hawk. It hopped backward among its companions, and all stood poised for flight. Our timetable will achieve the stature of a natural phenomenon, his father said. A planet's life is a vast, tightly interwoven fabric. Vegetation and animal changes will be determined at first by the raw physical forces we manipulate. As they establish themselves, though, our changes will become controlling influences in their own right, and we will have to deal with them, too. Keep in mind, though, that we need control only 3% of the energy surface. Only 3% to tip the entire structure over into our self-sustaining system. Why aren't you helping me? Kynes wondered. Always the same. When I need you most, you fail me. He wanted to turn his head to stare in the direction of his father's voice, stare the old man down. Muscles refused to answer his demand. Kynes saw the hawk move. It approached his hand, a cautious step at a time while its companions waited in mock indifference. The hawk stopped only a hop away from his hand. A profound clarity filled Kynes' mind. He saw quite suddenly a potential for Arrakis that his father had never seen. The possibilities along that different path flooded through him. No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero, his father said. Reading my mind, Kynes thought, well, let him. The messages already have been sent to my search villages, he thought. Nothing can stop them. If the Duke's son is alive, they'll find him and protect him as I have commanded. 
They may discard the woman, his mother, but they'll save the boy. The hawk took one hop that brought it within slashing distance of his hand. It tipped its head to examine the supine flesh. Abruptly, it straightened, stretched its head upward, and with a single screech, leaped into the air and banked away overhead with its companions behind it. They've come, Kynes thought. My Fremen have found me. Then he heard the sand, rumbling. Every Fremen knew the sound, could distinguish it immediately from the noises of worms or other desert life. Somewhere beneath him, the pre-spice mass had accumulated enough water and organic matter from the little makers, had reached the critical stage of wild growth. A gigantic bubble of carbon dioxide was forming deep in the sand, heaving upward in an enormous blow with a dust whirlpool at its center. It would exchange what had been formed deep in the sand for whatever lay on the surface. The hawks circled overhead, screeching their frustration. They knew what was happening. Any desert creature would know. And I am a desert creature, Kynes thought. You see me, father? I am a desert creature. He felt the bubble lift him. Felt it break in the dust whirlpool engulf him, dragging him down into cool darkness. For a moment, the sensation of coolness and the moisture were blessed relief. Then, as his planet killed him, it occurred to Kynes that his father and all the other scientists were wrong. That the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. Even the hawks could appreciate these facts. Prophecy and pressure. How can they be put to the test in the face of the unanswered question? Consider, how much is actual prediction of the waveform, as Muad'Dib referred to his vision image? And how much is the prophet shaping the future to fit the prophecy? What are the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy? Does the prophet see the future, or does he see a line of weakness, a fault or cleavage that he may shatter with words or decisions as a diamond cutter shatters his gem with a blow of a knife. Private Reflections on Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Get their water, the man calling out of the night had said. And Paul fought down his fear, glanced at his mother. His trained eyes saw her readiness for battle, the waiting whip snap of her muscles. It would be regrettable should we have to destroy you out of hand the voice above them said. That's the one who spoke to us first, Jessica thought. There are at least two of them, one to our right and one on our left. Signoro robosa sucares hin manj lap chagavas, duame kamavas na beslas lelepal robas. It was the man to their right calling out across the basin. To Paul, the words were gibberish, but out of her Bene Gesserit training, Jessica recognized the speech. It was Chakobsa, one of the ancient hunting languages, and the man above them was saying that perhaps these were the strangers they sought. In the sudden silence that followed the calling voice, the hoop-wheel face of the second moon, faintly ivory-blue, rolled over the rocks across the basin, bright and peering. Scrambling sounds came from the rocks, above and to both sides. Dark motions in the moonlight, many figures flowed through the shadows. A whole troop, Paul thought with a sudden pang. A tall man in a mottled burnous stepped in front of Jessica. 
His mouth baffle was thrown aside for clear speech, revealing a heavy beard in the sidelight of the moon, but face and eyes were hidden in the overhang of his hood. What have we here, Jean or human? he asked. When Jessica heard the true banter in his voice, she allowed herself a faint hope. This was the voice of command, the voice that had first shocked them with its intrusion from the night. Human, I warrant, the man said. Jessica sensed rather than saw the knife hidden in a fold of the man's robe. She permitted herself one bitter regret that she and Paul had no shields. Do you also speak? the man asked. Jessica put all the royal arrogance at her command into her manner and voice. Reply was urgent, but she had not heard enough of this man to be certain she had a register on his culture and weaknesses. Who comes on us like criminals out of the night? she demanded. The burnous hooded head showed tension in a sudden twist, then slow relaxation that revealed much. The men had good control. Paul shifted away from his mother to separate them as targets and give each of them a clearer arena of action. The hooded head turned at Paul's movement, opening a wedge of face to moonlight. Jessica saw a sharp nose, one glinting eye, dark, so dark the eye without any white in it, a heavy brown and upturned mustache. A likely cub, the man said. If you're fugitives from the Harkonnens, it may be you're welcome among us. What is it, boy? The possibilities flashed through Paul's mind. A trick? A fact? Immediate decision was needed. Why should you welcome fugitives? He demanded. A child who thinks and speaks like a man, the tall man said. Well now, to answer your question, my young Wally, I am one who does not pay the Fai, the water tribute to the Harkonnens. That is why I might welcome a fugitive. He knows who we are, Paul thought. There's concealment in his voice. I am Stilgar the Fremen, the tall man said. Does that speed your tongue, boy? It is the same voice, Paul thought. And he remembered the council with this man seeking the body of a friend slain by the Harkonnens. I know you, Stilgar, Paul said. I was with my father in council when you came for the water of your friend. You took away with you my father's man, Duncan Idaho, an exchange of friends. And Idaho abandoned us to return to his duke, Stilgar said. Jessica heard the shading of disgust in his voice, held herself prepared for attack. The voice from the rocks above them called, We waste time here still. This is the duke's son, Stilgar barked. He's certainly the one Liet told us to seek. But a child still... The duke was a man, and this lad used a thumper, Stilgar said. That was a brave crossing he made in the path of Shai Hulud. And Jessica heard him excluding her from his thoughts. Had he already passed sentence? We haven't time for the test, the voice above them protested. Yet he could be the Lisan al-Gaib, Stilgar said. He's looking for an omen, Jessica thought. But the woman... The voice above them said. Jessica readied herself anew. There had been death in that voice. Yes, the woman, Stilgar said, and her water. You know the law, said the voice from the rocks. Ones who cannot live with the desert, be quiet, Stilgar said. Times change. Did Liet command this? asked the voice from the rocks. 
You heard the voice of the Cialago, Jameis, Stilgar said. Why do you press me? And Jessica thought, Cialago. The clue of the tongue opened wide avenues of understanding. This was the language of Ilm and Fik, and Cialago meant bat, a small flying mammal. Voice of the Cialago, they had received a distrans message to seek Paul and herself. I but remind you of your duties, friend Stilgar, said the voice above them. My duty is the strength of the tribe, Stilgar said. That is my only duty. I need no one to remind me of it. This child man interests me. He is full-fleshed. He has lived on much water. He has lived away from the father-son. He has not the eyes of the Ibad. Yet he does not speak or act like a weakling of the pans, nor did his father. How can this be? We cannot stay out here all night arguing, said the voice from the rocks. If a patrol, I will not tell you again, Jameis, to be quiet, Stilgar said. The men above them remained silent. But Jessica heard him moving, crossing by a leap over a defile and working his way down to the basin floor on their left. The voice of the Cialago suggested there'd be value to us in saving you two, Stilgar said. I can see possibility in this strong boy man. He is young and can learn. But what of yourself, woman? He stared at Jessica. I have his voice and pattern registered now, Jessica thought. I could control him with a word, but he's a strong man, worth much more to us, unblunted and with full freedom of action. We shall see. I am the mother of this boy, Jessica said. In part, his strength which you admire is the product of my training. The strength of a woman can be boundless, Stilgar said. Certain it is, in a reverend mother... Are you a reverend mother? For the moment, Jessica put aside the implications of the question, answered truthfully, No. Are you trained in the ways of the desert? No, but many consider my training valuable. We make our own judgments on value, Stilgar said. Every man has the right to his own judgments, she said. It is well that you see the reason, Stilgar said. We cannot dally here to test you, woman, do you understand? We'd not want your shade to plague us. I will take the boy man, your son, and he shall have my countenance, sanctuary in my tribe. But for you, woman, you understand there is nothing personal in this. It is the rule. Istisla, in the general interest. Is that not enough? Paul took a half step forward. What are you talking about? Stilgar flicked a glance across Paul, but kept his attention on Jessica. Unless you've been deep trained from childhood to live here, you could bring destruction onto an entire tribe. It is the law, and we cannot carry useless. Jessica's motion started as a slumping, deceptive feint to the ground. It was the obvious thing for a weak outworlder to do, and the obvious slows an opponent's reactions. It takes an instant to interpret a known thing when that thing is exposed as something unknown. She shifted as she saw his right shoulder drop to bring a weapon within the folds of his robe to bear on her new position. A turn, a slash of her arm, a whirling of mingled robes, and she was against the rocks with the man helpless in front of her. At his mother's first movement, Paul backed two steps. As she attacked, he dove for shadows. 
A bearded man rose up in his path, half-crouched, lunging forward with a weapon in one hand. Paul took the man beneath the sternum with a straight-hand jab, sidestepped and chopped the base of his neck, relieving him of the weapon as he fell. Then Paul was into the shadows, scrambling upward among the rocks, the weapon tucked into his waist sash. He had recognized it in spite of its unfamiliar shape, a projector weapon. And that said many things about this place, another clue that shields were not used here. They will concentrate on my mother and that still guard fellow. She can handle him. I must get to a safe vantage point where I can threaten them and give her time to escape. There came a chorus of sharp spring clicks from the basin. Projectiles wind off the rocks around him. One of them flicked his robe. He squeezed around a corner in the rocks, found himself in a narrow vertical crack, began inching upward, his back against one side, his feet against the other, slowly, as silently as he could. The roar of Stilgar's voice echoed up to him. Get back, you worm-headed lice. She'll break my neck if you come near. A voice out of the basin said, The boy got away still. What are we... Of course he got away, you sand-brained... Ugh, easy woman. Tell them to stop hunting, my son, Jessica said. They've stopped, woman. He got away as you intended him to. Great gods below. Why didn't you say you were a weirding woman and a fighter? Tell your men to fall back, Jessica said. Tell them to go out into the basin where I can see them. And you'd better believe that I know how many of them there are. And she thought, this is the delicate moment. But if this man is as sharp-minded as I think him, we have a chance. Paul inched his way upward, found a narrow ledge on which he could rest, and looked down into the basin. Stilgar's voice came up to him. And if I refuse, how can you... Ah, leave be, woman. We mean no harm to you now. Great gods, if you can do this to the strongest of us, you're worth ten times your weight of water. Now the test of reason, Jessica thought. She said, you ask after the Lisan al-Gaib. You could be the folk of the legend, he said. But I'll believe that when it's been tested. All I know now is that you came here with that stupid duke who... Ah, woman! I care not if you kill me. He was honorable and brave, but it was stupid to put himself in the way of the Harkonnen fist. Silence. Presently, Jessica said, he had no choice. But we'll not argue it. Now, tell that man of yours behind the bush over there to stop trying to bring his weapon to bear on me. Or I'll rid the universe of you and take him next. You there! Stilgar roared. Do as she says. But still, do as she says, you worm-faced, crawling, sand-brained piece of lizard turd. Do it or I'll help her dismember you. Can't you see the worth of this woman? The man at the bush, straightened from his partial concealment, lowered his weapon. He has obeyed, Stilgar said. Now, Jessica said, explain clearly to your people what it is you wish of me. I want no young hothead to make a foolish mistake. When we slip into the villages and towns, we must mask our origin. Blend with the Pan and Graben folk, Stilgar said. We carry no weapons, for the Chris knife is sacred. But you, woman, you have the weirding ability of battle. We'd only heard of it, and many doubted, but one cannot doubt what he sees with his own eyes. You mastered an armed Fremen. This is a weapon no search could expose. There was a stirring in the basin as Stilgar's words sank home. And if I agree to teach you the weirding way, my countenance for you as well as your son, how can we be sure of the truth in your promise? Stilgar's voice lost some of its subtle undertone of reasoning, took on an edge of bitterness. 
Out here, woman, we carry no paper for contracts. We make no evening promises to be broken at dawn. When a man says a thing, that's the contract. As leader of my people, I've put them in bond to my word. Teach us this weirding way, and you have sanctuary with us as long as you wish. Your water shall mingle with our water. Can you speak for all Fremen? Jessica asked. In time that may be, but only my brother Liette speaks for all Fremen. Here I promise only secrecy. My people will not speak of you to any other Siech. The Harkonnens have returned to Dune in force and your duke is dead. It is said that you two died in a mother storm. The hunter does not seek dead game. There's a safety in that, Jessica thought. But these people have good communications and a message could be sent. I presume there was a reward offered for us, she said. Stilgar remained silent and she could almost see the thoughts turning over in his head, sensing the shifts of his muscles beneath her hands. Presently, he said, I will say it once more. I've given the tribe's word bond. My people know your worth to us now. What could the Harkonnens give us? Our freedom? Ha! No, you are the Taqwa, that which buys us more than all the spice in the Harkonnen coffers. Then I shall teach you my way of battle, Jessica said, and she sensed the unconscious ritual intensity of her own words. Now will you release me? So be it, Jessica said. She released her hold on him, stepped aside in full view of the bank in the basin. This is the test machete, she thought. But Paul must know about them even if I die for his knowledge.
tune. You know what my son's doing? My little future son. Future son is watching A New Hope with his friends, uh, one of whom is in Los Angeles, and I don't know where the other one is. They're all together on, uh, you know, video chat, watching Star Wars A New Hope. Meanwhile, over here, it's a late night science fiction double feature, Zach Souser, that's right. You've been asking for it. You're going to get it. X going to give it to you. Shouts out to friends on. YCHA, could you do me a favor, my guy? And make a note of where part two starts as well as where part one starts for the uh, time stamping. Zach Sanders says, I watch old Top Gear with my buds on Discord every now and again. <laughs> That's funny. Jeremy Clarkson, all day. Uh, shout out to Bob Ottomans. Thank you for the $42 super chat. That's very beautiful and generous of you. God bless. What do you say? There's a whale emoji and there's like a, what is that, a bowl? Or is that the earth cut in half with salad coming out? I can't tell. Just can't tell from here, but God bless. Benjamin Gunn, how you doing, baby? How's everyone enjoying this tonight? Before we go back in. It's getting pretty intense out here. What up, what up, what up, splash, woo, drip, woo, splash, what up, what up, what up, splash. Uh, every time I, we do this, it just never ceases to, to amaze me how much uh, George R.R. R. Martin lifted from this. Come on. Defy says it's delightful. Mount Photo Lounge says effort. Zach Sass is loving this every week. Robert Easy says enjoying the heck out of this. Sheila says splish splash. Red Bracon says having a great evening. Bob Otsman says whoa. Kyla Sherrard has dropped some piano emoji. That's nice. Shouts out to Flap Flap. Yeah, Bob Otsman says dude, you just blew my mind. You're right as hell. Aye. Aye. Finding the wide lanes and shit. Whoa. Hey. Hey. All right, baby, let's get back in. Shit. Why not? We're here. Why not? Did that 13 hour stream on Friday. It's like, yeah. Say nothing. Let's get it.
let's not get it. <laughs> I put the song in the deck that the book was in. The book was in that deck, yeah. And now the book has been out of the deck. Gotta put the book back into the deck. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I write books back in the deck. The book's back in the deck. Let's try that again. In the waiting silence, Paul inched forward to get a better view of where his mother stood. As he moved, he heard heavy breathing suddenly stilled above him in the vertical crack of the rock and sensed a faint shadow there outlined against the stars. Stilgar's voice came up from the basin. You up there, stop hunting the boy. He'll come down presently. The voice of a young boy or a girl sounded from the darkness above Paul. But still, he can't be far from... I said, leave him be, Chani, you spawn of a lizard. There came a whispered imprecation from above Paul and a low voice. Call me spawn of a lizard. But the shadow pulled back out of view. Paul returned his attention to the basin, picking out the grey-shadowed movement of Stilgar beside his mother. Come in, all of you, Stilgar called. He turned to Jessica. And now I'll ask you how we may be certain you'll fulfill your half of our bargain. You're the ones lived with papers and empty contracts and such as... We of the Bene Gesserit don't break our vows any more than you do, Jessica said. There was a protracted silence, then a multiple hissing of voices. A Bene Gesserit witch. Paul brought his captured weapon from his sash trained it on the dark figure of Stilgar, but the man and his companions remained immobile, staring at Jessica. It is the legend, someone said. It was said that the Shadout Mapes gave this report on you, Stilgar said. But a thing so important must be tested. If you are the Bene Gesserit of the legend whose son will lead us to paradise. He shrugged. Jessica sighed, thinking... So our missionaria protectiva even planted religious safety valves all through this hellhole. Oh well, it'll help, and that's what it was meant to do. She said, The seeress who brought you the legend, she gave it under the binding of Karama and Ijaz, the miracle and the inimitability of the prophecy. This I know. Do you wish a sign? His nostrils flared in the moonlight. We cannot tarry for the rites, he whispered. Jessica recalled a chart Kynes had shown her while arranging emergency escape routes. How long ago it seemed. There had been a place called Siech Tabr on the chart and beside it the notation Stilgar. Perhaps when we get to Siech Tabr, she said. The revelation shook him, and Jessica thought, if only he knew the tricks we use. She must have been good, that Bene Gesserit of the Missionaria Protectiva. These Fremen are beautifully prepared to believe in us. Stilgar shifted uneasily. We must go now. She nodded, letting him know that they left with her permission. He looked up at the cliff almost directly at the rock ledge where Paul crouched. You there, lad, you may come down now. 
He returned his attention to Jessica, spoke with an apologetic tone. Your son made an incredible amount of noise climbing. He has much to learn lest he endanger us all, but he's young. No doubt we have much to teach each other, Jessica said. Meanwhile, you'd best see to your companion out there. My noisy son was a bit rough in disarming him. Stilgar whirled, his hood flapping. Where? Beyond those bushes, she pointed. Stilgar touched two of his men. See to it. He glanced at his companions, identifying them. Jameis is missing. He turned to Jessica. Even your cub knows the weirding way. And you'll notice that my son hasn't stirred from up there as you ordered, Jessica said. The two men Stilgar had sent returned, supporting a third who stumbled and gasped between them. Stilgar gave them a flicking glance, returned his attention to Jessica. The son will take only your orders, eh? Good. He knows discipline. Paul, you may come down now, Jessica said. Paul stood up, emerging into moonlight above his concealing cleft, slipped the Fremen weapon back into his sash. As he turned, another figure arose from the rocks to face him. In the moonlight and reflection off grey stone, Paul saw a small figure in Fremen robes, a shadowed face peering out at him from the hood, and the muzzle of one of the projectile weapons aimed at him from a fold of robe. I am Chani, daughter of Liette. The voice was lilting, half filled with laughter. I would not have permitted you to harm my companions, she said. Paul swallowed. The figure in front of him turned into the moon's path, and he saw an elfin face, black pits of eyes. The familiarity of that face, the features out of numberless visions in his earliest prescience, shocked Paul to stillness. He remembered the angry bravado with which he had once described this face from a dream, telling the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohiam, I will meet her. And here was the face. But in no meeting he had ever dreamed. You were as noisy as Shaihulud in a rage, she said. And you took the most difficult way up here. Follow me, I'll show you an easier way down. He scrambled out of the cleft, followed the swirling of her robe across a tumbled landscape. She moved like a gazelle, dancing over the rocks. Paul felt hot blood in his face, was thankful for the darkness. That girl. She was like a touch of destiny. He felt caught up on a wave, in tune with a motion that lifted all his spirits. They stood presently amidst the Fremen on the basin floor. Jessica turned a wry smile on Paul, but spoke to Stilgar. This will be a good exchange of teachings. I hope you and your people feel no anger at our violence. It seemed necessary. You were about to make a mistake. To save one from a mistake is a gift of paradise, Stilgar said. He touched his lips with his left hand, lifted the weapon from Paul's waist with the other, tossed it to a companion. You will have your own Maula pistol, lad, when you've earned it. Paul started to speak, hesitated, remembering his mother's teaching. Beginnings are such delicate times. 
My son has what weapons he needs, Jessica said. She stared at Stilgar, forcing him to think of how Paul had acquired the pistol. Stilgar glanced at the man Paul had subdued. Jameis. The man stood at one side, head lowered, breathing heavily. You are a difficult woman, Stilgar said. He held out his left hand to a companion, snapped his fingers. Kushti bakate. Morchakopsa, Jessica thought. The companion pressed two squares of gauze into Stilgar's hand. Stilgar ran them through his fingers, fixed one around Jessica's neck beneath her hood, fitted the other around Paul's neck in the same way. Now you wear the kerchief of the baka, he said. If we become separated, you will be recognized as belonging to Stilgar's siege. We will talk of weapons another time. He moved out through his band now, inspecting them, giving Paul's Fremkit pack to one of his men to carry. Baka, Jessica thought, recognizing the religious term Baka, the weeper. She sensed how the symbolism of the kerchiefs united this band. Why should weeping unite them, she asked herself. Stilgar came to the young girl who had embarrassed Paul, said, Johnny, take the child man under your wing, keep him out of trouble. Chani touched Paul's arm. Come along, child man. Paul hid the anger in his voice, said, My name is Paul. It were well you... We'll give you a name, manling, Stilgar said, in the time of the Michna, at the test of Akul. The test of reason, Jessica translated. The sudden need of Paul's ascendancy overrode all other consideration, and she barked, My son's been tested with the Gamjabar. In the stillness that followed, she knew she had struck to the heart of them. There's much we don't know of each other, Stilgar said, but we tarry over long. Day son mustn't find us in the open. He crossed to the man Paul had struck down, said, Jameis, can you travel? A grunt answered him. Surprised me, he did. "'Twas an accident. I can travel. No accident, Stilgar said. I'll hold you responsible with Chani for the lad's safety, Jameis. These people have my countenance. Jessica stared at the man, Jameis. His was the voice that had argued with Stilgar from the rocks. His was the voice with death in it and Stilgar had seen fit to reinforce his order with this Jameis. Stilgar flicked a testing glance across the group, motioned two men out. Larus and Farouk, you are to hide our tracks. See that we leave no trace. Extra care, we have two with us who've not been trained. He turned, hand upheld, and aimed across the basin. In squad line with flankers, move out. We must be at Cave of the Ridges before dawn. Jessica fell into step beside Stilgar, counting heads. There were forty Fremen. She and Paul made it forty-two. And she thought, they travel as a military company. Even the girl, Chani. Paul took a place in the line behind Chani. He had put down the black feeling at being caught by the girl. In his mind now was the memory called up by his mother's barked reminder, my son's been tested with the Gamjabar. He found that his hand tingled with remembered pain. Watch where you go, Chani hissed, 
Do not brush against a bush lest you leave a thread to show our passage. Paul swallowed, nodded. Jessica listened to the sounds of the troop, hearing her own footsteps and Paul's, marveling at the way the Fremen moved. They were forty people crossing the basin with only the sounds natural to the place. Ghostly felucas, their ropes flitting through the shadows. Their destination was Siech Tabor, Stilgar Siech. She turned the word over in her mind. Siech. It was a Chakobsa word, unchanged from the old hunting language out of countless centuries. Siech, a meeting place in time of danger. The profound implications of the word and the language were just beginning to register with her after the tension of their encounter. We move well, Stilgar said. With Shai Hulud's favor, we'll reach Cave of the Ridges before dawn. Jessica nodded, conserving her strength, sensing the terrible fatigue she held at bay by force of will. And, she admitted it, by the force of elation. Her mind focused on the value of this troop, seeing what was revealed here about the Fremen culture. All of them, she thought, an entire culture trained to military order. What a priceless thing is here for an outcast duke. The Fremen were supreme in that quality the ancients called Spannungsbogen which is the self-imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing. From the Wisdom of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. They approached Cave of the Ridges at dawnbreak, moving through a split in the basin wall so narrow they had to turn sideways to negotiate it. Jessica saw Stilgar detach guards in the thin dawn light saw them for a moment as they began their scrambling climb up the cliff. Paul turned his head upward as he walked, seeing the tapestry of this planet cut in cross-section where the narrow cleft gaped toward grey-blue sky. Chani pulled at his robe to hurry him, said, Quickly, it is already light. The men who climbed above us, where are they going? Paul whispered. The first day watch, she said. Hurry now. The guard left outside, Paul thought wise. But it would have been wiser still for us to approach this place in separate bands. Less chance of losing the whole troop. He paused in the thought, realizing that this was guerrilla thinking. And he remembered his father's fear that the Atreides might become a guerrilla house. Faster, Chani whispered. Paul sped his steps, hearing the swish of robes behind and he thought of the words of the Sirat from Yui's tiny O.C. Bible. Paradise on my right, hell on my left, and the angel of death behind. He rolled the quotation in his mind. They rounded a corner where the passage widened. Silgar stood at one side, motioning them into a low hole that opened at right angles. Quickly, he hissed. We're like rabbits in a cage if a patrol catches us here. Paul bent for the opening followed Chani into a cave illuminated by thin grey light from somewhere ahead. You can stand up, she said. He straightened, studied the place. A deep and wide area with domed ceiling that curved away just out of a man's hand reach. The troops spread out through shadows, 
Paul saw his mother come up on one side, saw her examine their companions, and he noted how she failed to blend with the Fremen even though her garb was identical. The way she moved, such a sense of power and grace. Find a place to rest and stay out of the way, child man, Chani said. Here's food. She pressed two leaf-wrapped morsels into his hand. They reeked of spice. Stilgar came up behind Jessica, called an order to a group on the left. Get the door seal in place and see to moisture security. He turned to another Fremen. Lemuel, get glow globes. He took Jessica's arm. I wish to show you something, weirding woman. He led her around a curve of rock toward the light source. Jessica found herself looking out across the wide lip of another opening to the cave, an opening high in a cliff wall, looking out across another basin about ten or twelve kilometers wide. The basin was shielded by high rock walls. Sparse clumps of plant growth were scattered around it. As she looked at the dawn-gray basin, the sun lifted over the far escarpment, illuminating a biscuit-colored landscape of rocks and sand and she noted how the sun of Arrakis appeared to leap over the horizon. It's because we want to hold it back, she thought. Night is safer than day. There came over her then a longing for a rainbow in this place that would never see rain. I must suppress such longings, she thought. They're a weakness. I no longer can afford weaknesses. Stilgar gripped her arm, pointed across the basin. There... There you see proper druses. She looked where he pointed, saw movement. People on the basin floor scattering at the daylight into the shadows of the opposite cliff wall. In spite of the distance, their movements were plain in the clear air. She lifted her binoculars from beneath her robe, focused the oil lenses on the distant people. Kerchiefs fluttered like a flight of multicolored butterflies. That is home, Stilgar said. We will be there this night. He stared across the basin, tugging at his mustache. My people stayed out over late working. That means there are no patrols about. I'll signal them later and they'll prepare for us. Your people show good discipline, Jessica said. She lowered the binoculars, saw that Stilgar was looking at them. They obey the preservation of the tribe, he said. It is the way we choose among us for a leader. The leader is the one who is strongest, the one who brings water and security. He lifted his attention to her face. She returned his stare, noted the whiteless eyes, the stained eye pits, the dust-rimmed beard and mustache, the line of the catch tube curving down from his nostrils into his still suit. Have I compromised your leadership by besting you, Stilgar? She asked. You did not call me out, he said. It's important that a leader keep the respect of his troop, she said. Isn't a one of those sand lice I cannot handle, Stilgar said. When you bested me, you bested us all. Now they hope to learn from you the weirding way. And some are curious to see if you intend to call me out. She weighed the implications. By besting you in formal battle? He nodded. I'd advise you against this because they'd not follow you. You're not of the sand. They saw this in our night's passage. Practical people, she said. 
true enough. He glanced at the basin. We know our needs. But not many are thinking deep thoughts now this close to home. We've been out over long, arranging to deliver our spice quota to the free traders for the cursed guild. May their faces be forever black. Jessica stopped in the act of turning away from him, looked back up into his face. The guild? What has the guild to do with your spice? It's Liet's command, Stilgar said. We know the reason, but the taste of it sours us. We bribe the guild with a monstrous payment in spice to keep our skies clear of satellites and such that none may spy what we do to the face of Arrakis. She weighed out her words, remembering that Paul had said this must be the reason Arakeen's skies were clear of satellites. And what is it you do to the face of Arrakis that must not be seen? We change it, slowly but with certainty, to make it fit for human life. Our generation will not see it, nor our children, nor our children's children, nor the grandchildren of their children. But it will come. He stared with veiled eyes out over the basin. Open water, and tall green plants, and people walking freely without stillsuits. So that's the dream of this Liet Kynes, she thought. And she said, Bribes are dangerous. They have a way of growing larger and larger. They grow, he said, but the slow way is the safe way. Jessica turned, looked out over the basin, trying to see it the way Stilgar was seeing it in his imagination. She saw only the grayed mustard stain of distant rocks and a sudden hazy motion in the sky above the cliffs. Ah, Stilgar said. She thought at first it must be a patrol vehicle, then realized it was a mirage. Another landscape hovering over the desert sand and a distant wavering of greenery, and in the middle distance, a long worm traveling the surface with what looked like Fremen robes fluttering on its back. The mirage faded. It would be better to ride, Stilgar said, but we cannot permit a maker into this basin. Thus, we must walk again tonight. Maker. Their word for worm, she thought. She measured the import of his words, the statement that they could not permit a worm into this basin. She knew what she had seen in the mirage, Fremen riding on the back of a giant worm. It took heavy control not to betray her shock at the implications. We must be getting back to the others, Stilgar said, else my people may suspect I dally with you. Some already are jealous that my hands tasted your loveliness when we struggled last night in Tuono Basin. That will be enough of that, Jessica snapped. No offense, Stilgar said, and his voice was mild. Women among us are not taken against their will. And with you, he shrugged, even that convention isn't required. You will keep in mind that I was a duke's lady, she said. But her voice was calmer. As you wish, he said. It's time to seal off this opening to permit relaxation of stillsuit discipline. My people need to rest and comfort this day. Their families will give them little rest on the morrow. Silence fell between them. Jessica stared out into the sunlight. 
She had heard what she had heard in Stilgar's voice, the unspoken offer of more than his countenance. Did he need a wife? She realized she could step into that place with him. It would be one way to end conflict over tribal leadership, female properly aligned with male. But what of Paul, then? Who could tell yet what rules of parenthood prevailed here? And what of the unborn daughter she had carried these few weeks? What of a dead duke's daughter? And she permitted herself to face fully the significance of this other child growing within her, to see her own motives in permitting the conception. She knew what it was. She had succumbed to that profound drive shared by all creatures who are faced with death. The drive to seek immortality through progeny. The fertility drive of the species had overpowered them. Jessica glanced at Stilgar, saw that he was studying her, waiting. A daughter born here to a woman wed to such a one as this man. What would be the fate of such a daughter? She asked herself. Would he try to limit the necessities that a Bene Gesserit must follow? Stilgar cleared his throat and revealed then that he understood some of the questions in her mind. What is important for a leader is that which makes him a leader. It is the needs of his people. If you teach me your powers, there may come a day when one of us must challenge the other. I would prefer some alternative. There are several alternatives? she asked. The Sayadina, he said. Our reverend mother is old. Their reverend mother? Before she could probe this, he said, I do not necessarily offer myself as mate. This is nothing personal, for you are beautiful and desirable. But should you become one of my women, that might lead some of my young men to believe that I'm too much concerned with pleasures of the flesh and not enough concerned with the tribe's needs. Even now they listen to us and watch us. A man who weighs his decisions, who thinks of consequences, she thought. There are those among my young men who have reached the age of wild spirits, he said. They must be eased through this period. and must leave no great reasons around for them to challenge me, because I would have to maim and kill among them. This is not the proper course for a leader if it can be avoided with honor. A leader, you see, is one of the things that distinguishes a mob from a people. He maintains the level of individuals. Too few individuals and a people reverts to a mob. His words, the depth of their awareness, the fact that he spoke as much to her as to those who secretly listened, forced her to reevaluate him. He has stature, she thought. Where did he learn such inner balance? The law that demands our form of choosing a leader is a just law, Stilgar said. But it does not follow that justice is always the thing a people needs. What we truly need now is time to grow and prosper, to spread our force over more land. What is his ancestry, she wondered. Whence comes such breeding? She said, Stilgar, I underestimated you. Such was my suspicion, he said. Each of us apparently underestimated the other, she said. I should like an end to this, he said. I should like friendship with you and trust. I should like that respect for each other 
which grows in the breast without demand for the huddlings of sex. I understand, she said. Do you trust me? I hear your sincerity. Among us, he said, the Seyadina, when they are not the formal leaders, hold a special place of honor. They teach. They maintain the strength of God here. He touched his breast. Now I must probe this reverend mother mystery, she thought. And she said, You spoke of your reverend mother, and I've heard words of legend and prophecy. It is said that Ebene Gesserit and her offspring hold the key to our future, he said. Do you believe I am that one? She watched his face, thinking, The young reed dies so easily. Beginnings are times of such great peril. We do not know, he said. She nodded, thinking, He's an honorable man. He wants a sign from me, but he'll not tip fate by telling me the sign. Jessica turned her head, stared down into the basin at the golden shadows, the purple shadows, the vibrations of dust-mote air across the lip of their cave. Her mind was filled suddenly with feline prudence. She knew the cant of the Missionaria Protectiva, knew how to adapt the techniques of legend and fear and hope to her emergency needs. But she sensed wild changes here, as though someone had been in among these Fremen and capitalized on the Missionaria Protectiva's imprint. Stilgar cleared his throat. She sensed his impatience, knew that the day moved ahead and men waited to seal off this opening. This was a time for boldness on her part, and she realized what she needed. Some Dar al-Hikman, some school of translation that would give her... Adab, she whispered. Her mind felt as though it had rolled over within her. She recognized the sensation with a quickening of pulse. Nothing in all the Bene Gesserit training carried such a signal of recognition. It could be only the Adab, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself. She gave herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. Ibn Kirtaiba, she said, as far as the spot where the dust ends. She stretched out an arm from her robe, seeing Stilgar's eyes go wide. She heard a rustling of many robes in the background. I see a Fremen with the Book of Examples, she intoned. He reads to Allah the son whom he defied and subjugated. He reads to the sadhus of the trial, and this is what he reads. Mine enemies are like green blades eaten down that did stand in the path of the tempest. Hast thou not seen what our Lord did? He sent the pestilence among them that did lay schemes against us. They are like birds scattered by the huntsman. Their schemes are like pellets of poison that every mouth rejects. A trembling passed through her. She dropped her arm. Back to her from the inner cave's shadows came a whispered response of many voices. Their works have been overturned. The fire of God mount over thy heart, she said, and she thought, now it goes in the proper channel. The fire of God set alight, came the response. 
she nodded. Thine enemies shall fall, she said. Bila Kaifa, they answered. In the sudden hush, Stilgar bowed to her. Say Adina, he said. If the Shaihulud grant, then you may yet pass within to become a reverend mother. Pass within, she thought. An odd way of putting it. But the rest of it fitted into the cant well enough, and she felt a cynical bitterness at what she had done. Our missionaria protectiva seldom fails. A place was prepared for us in this wilderness. The prayer of the Salat has carved out our hiding place. Now I must play the part of Auluya, the friend of God. Say Adina to rogue peoples who've been so heavily imprinted with our Bene Gesserit soothsay, they even call their chief priestesses reverend mothers. Paul stood beside Chani in the shadows of the inner cave. He could still taste the morsel she had fed him, bird flesh and grain bound with spice honey and encased in a leaf. In tasting it, he had realized he never before had eaten such a concentration of spice essence and there had been a moment of fear. He knew what this essence could do to him, the spice change that pushed his mind into prescient awareness. Bila Kaifa, Chani whispered. He looked at her, seeing the awe with which the Fremen appeared to accept his mother's words. Only the man called Jamus seemed to stand aloof from the ceremony, holding himself apart with arms folded across his breast. Due yakra hin mange, Chani whispered. Due punra hin mange. I have two eyes, I have two feet. And she stared at Paul with a look of wonder. Paul took a deep breath, trying to still the tempest within him. His mother's words had locked onto the working of the spice essence. And he had felt her voice rise and fall within him like the shadows of an open fire. Through it all, he had sensed the edge of cynicism in her. He knew her so well. But nothing could stop this thing that had begun with a morsel of food. Terrible purpose. He sensed it. The race consciousness that he could not escape. There was the sharpened clarity, the inflow of data, the cold precision of his awareness. He sank to the floor, sitting with his back against rock, giving himself up to it. Awareness flowed into that timeless stratum where he could view time, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future, the winds of the past. The one-eyed vision of the past, the one-eyed vision of the present, and the one-eyed vision of the future, all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time become space. There was danger, he felt, of overrunning himself, and he had to hold on to his awareness of the present, sensing the blurred deflection of experience, the flowing moment, the continual solidification of that which is into the perpetual was. In grasping the present, he felt for the first time the massive steadiness of time's movement everywhere, complicated by shifting currents, waves, surges and countersurges, like surf against rocky cliffs. It gave him a new understanding of his prescience. And he saw the source of blind time, the source of error in it, with an immediate sensation 
of fear. The prescience, he realized, was an illumination that incorporated the limits of what it revealed, at once a source of accuracy and meaningful error. A kind of Heisenberg indeterminacy intervened. The expenditure of energy that revealed what he saw changed what he saw. And what he saw was a time nexus within this cave, a boiling of possibilities focused here, wherein the most minute action, the wink of an eye, a careless word, a misplaced grain of sand, moved a gigantic lever across the known universe. He saw violence with the outcome subject to so many variables that his slightest movement created vast shiftings in the pattern. The vision made him want to freeze into immobility, but this too was action with its consequences. The countless consequences, lines fanned out from this cave, and along most of these consequence lines, he saw his own dead body with blood flowing from a gaping knife wound. My father, the Padishah Emperor, was 72, yet looked no more than 35 the year he encompassed the death of Duke Leto and gave Arrakis back to the Harkonnens. He seldom appeared in public wearing other than a Sardaukar uniform and a Berseg's black helmet with the Imperial Lion in gold upon its crest. The uniform was an open reminder of where his power lay. He wasn't always that blatant, though. When he wanted, he could radiate charm and sincerity. But I often wonder, in these later days, if anything about him was as it seemed. I think now he was a man fighting constantly to escape the bars of an invisible cage. You must remember that he was an emperor, father head of a dynasty that reached back into the dimmest history. But we denied him a legal son. Was this not the most terrible defeat a ruler ever suffered? My mother obeyed her sister superiors, where the Lady Jessica disobeyed. Which of them was the stronger? History already has answered. In my father's house, by the Princess Irulan. Jessica awakened in cave darkness, sensing the stir of Fremen around her, smelling the acrid still-suit odor. Her inner time sense told her it would soon be night outside, but the cave remained in blackness, shielded from the desert by the plastic hoods that trapped their body moisture within this space. She realized that she had permitted herself the utterly relaxing sleep of great fatigue, and this suggested something of her own unconscious assessment on personal security within Stilgar's troop. She turned in the hammock that had been fashioned of her robe, slipped her feet to the rock floor, and into her desert boots. I must remember to fasten the boots slip fashion to help my still suit's pumping action, she thought. There are so many things to remember. She could still taste their morning meal, the morsel of bird flesh and grain bound within a leaf with spice honey, and it came to her that the use of time was turned around here. Night was the day of activity, and day was the time of rest. Night conceals, night is safest. 
She unhooked her robe from its hammock pegs in a rock alcove, fumbled with the fabric in the dark until she found the top, slipped into it. How to get a message out to the Bene Gesserit, she wondered. They would have to be told of the two strays in Arakin's sanctuary. Glow globes came a light farther into the cave. She saw people moving there, Paul among them already dressed and with his hood thrown back to reveal the aquiline Atreides profile. He had acted so strangely before they retired, she thought. Withdrawn. He was like one come back from the dead, not yet fully aware of his return, his eyes half shut and glassy with the inward stare. It made her think of his warning about the spice-impregnated diet. Addictive. Are there side effects? she wondered. He said it had something to do with his prescient faculty, but he has been strangely silent about what he sees. Stilgar came from shadows to her right, crossed to the group beneath the glow globes. She marked how he fingered his beard and the watchful, cat-stalking look of him. Abrupt fear shot through Jessica as her senses awakened to the tensions visible in the people gathered around Paul, the stiff movements, the ritual positions. They have my countenance, Stilgar rumbled. Jessica recognized the man Stilgar confronted, Jameis. She saw then the rage in Jameis, the tight set of his shoulders. Jameis, the man Paul bested, she thought. You know the rules, Stilgar, Jameis said. Who knows it better, Stilgar asked, and she heard the tone of placation in his voice, the attempt to smooth something over. I choose the combat, Jameis growled. Jessica sped across the cave, grasped Stilgar's arm. What is this? she asked. It is the Amtal rule, Stilgar said. Jameis is demanding the right to test your part in the legend. She must be championed, Jameis said. If her champion wins, that's the truth in it. But it's said, he glanced across the press of people, that she'd need no champion from the Fremen, which can mean only that she brings her own champion. He's talking of single combat with Paul. Jessica thought. She released Stilgar's arm, took a half-step forward. I'm always my own champion, she said. The meaning's simple enough for... You'll not tell us our ways, Jameis snapped. Not without more proof than I've seen. Stilgar could have told you what to say last morning. He could have filled your mind full of the coddle, and you could have bird-talked it to us, hoping to make a false way among us. I can take him. Jessica thought, but that might conflict with the way they interpret the legend. And again she wondered at the way the Missionaria Protectiva's work had been twisted on this planet. Stilgar looked at Jessica, spoke in a low voice, but one designed to carry to the crowd's fringe. Jameis is one to hold a grudge, Seadina. Your son bested him, and... It was an accident, Jameis roared. There was witch force at Tuono Basin, and I'll prove it now. And I've bested him myself, Stilgar continued. He seeks by this Tahadi challenge to get back at me as well. There's too much of violence in Jameis for him ever to make a good leader. Too much gafla, the distraction. He gives his mouth to the rules and his heart to the sarfa, the turning way. No, he could never make a good leader. 
I've preserved him this long because he's useful in a fight as such, but when he gets this carving anger on him, he's dangerous to his own society. Stilgar? Jameis rumbled. And Jessica saw what Stilgar was doing, trying to enrage Jameis to take the challenge away from Paul. Stilgar faced Jameis, and again Jessica heard the soothing in the rumbling voice. Jameis, he's but a boy. He's... You named him a man, Jameis said. His mother says he's been through the Gamjabar. He's full-fleshed and with a surfeit of water. The ones who carried their pack say there's literjohns of water in it. Literjohns. And us sipping our catch pockets the instant they showed dew sparkle. Stilgar glanced at Jessica. Is this true? Is there water in your pack? Yes. Literjohns of it? Two literjohns. What was intended with this well? Well, she thought. She shook her head, feeling the coldness in his voice. Where I was born, water fell from the sky and ran over the land in wide rivers, she said. There were oceans of it so broad you could not see the other shore. I've not been trained to your water discipline. I never before had to think of it this way. A sighing gasp arose from the people around them. Water fell from the sky. It ran over the land. Did you know there are those among us who've lost from their catch pockets by accident and will be in sore trouble before we reach Tabor this night? How could I know? Jessica shook her head. If they're in need, give them water from our pack. Is that what you intended with this wealth? I intended it to save life, she said. Then we accept your blessing, Seadina. You'll not buy us off with water, Jameis growled. Nor will you anger me against yourself, Stilgar. I see you trying to make me call you out before I've proved my words. Stilgar faced Jameis. Are you determined to press this fight against a child, Jameis? His voice was low, venomous. She must be championed. Even though she has my countenance, I invoke the Amtal rule. Jameis said, it's my right. Stilgar nodded. Then, if the boy does not carve you down, you'll answer to my knife afterward. And this time I'll not hold back the blade as I've done before. You cannot do this thing, Jessica said. Paul's just... You must not interfere, Seadina. Stilgar said. Oh, I know you can take me, and therefore can take anyone among us, but you cannot best us all united. This must be, it is the Amtal rule. Jessica fell silent, staring at him in the green light of the glow globes, seeing the demoniacal stiffness that had taken over his expression. She shifted her attention to Jameis, saw the brooding look to his brows and thought, I should have seen that before, he broods. He's the silent kind, one who works himself up inside. I should have been prepared. If you harm my son, she said, you will have me to meet. I call you out now. I'll carve you into a joint of... Mother! Paul stepped forward, touched her sleeve. Perhaps if I explain to Jameis how... Explain! Jameis sneered. Paul fell silent, staring at the man. He felt no fear of him. Jameis appeared clumsy in his movements, and he had fallen so easily in their night encounter on the sand. 
but Paul still felt the nexus boiling of this cave, still remembered the prescient visions of himself dead under a knife. There had been so few avenues of escape for him in that vision. Silgar said, Sayadina, you must step back now, where Stop calling her Sayadina, Jameis said. That's yet to be proved. So she knows the prayer. What's that? Every child among us knows it. He has talked enough, Jessica thought. I've the key to him. I could immobilize him with a word. She hesitated. But I cannot stop them all. You will answer to me then, Jessica said, and she pitched her voice in a twisting tone with a little whine in it and a catch at the end. Jameis stared at her, fright visible on his face. I'll teach you, Agony, she said in the same tone. Remember that as you fight. You'll have agony such as will make the Ganja Bar a happy memory by comparison. You will writhe with your entire... She tries a spell on me, Jameis gasped. He put his clenched right fist beside his ear. I invoke the silence on her. So be it then, Stilgar said. He cast a warning glance at Jessica. If you speak again, say Adina, we'll know it's your witchcraft and you'll be forfeit. He nodded for her to step back. Jessica felt hands pulling her, helping her back, and she sensed they were not unkindly. She saw Paul being separated from the throng, the elfin-faced Chani whispering in his ear as she nodded toward Jameis. A ring formed within the troop. More glow globes were brought, and all of them tuned to the yellow band. Jameis stepped into the ring, slipped out of his robe, and tossed it to someone in the crowd. He stood there in a cloudy gray slickness of stillsuit that was patched and marked by tucks and gathers. For a moment he bent with his mouth to his shoulder, drinking from a catch pocket tube. Presently he straightened, peeled off, and detached the suit, handed it carefully into the crowd. He stood waiting, clad in loincloth and some tight fabric over his feet, a Chris knife in his right hand. Jessica saw the girl child, Chani, helping Paul, saw her press a Chris knife handle into his palm, saw him heft it, testing the weight and balance. And it came to Jessica that Paul had been trained in prana and bindu, the nerve and the fiber, that he had been taught fighting in a deadly school, his teachers, men like Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, men who were legends in their own lifetimes. The boy knew the devious ways of the Bene Gesserit, and he looked supple and confident. But he's only fifteen, she thought, and he has no shield. I must stop this. Somehow there must be a way to... She looked up, saw Stilgar watching her. You cannot stop it, he said. You must not speak. She put a hand over her mouth, thinking, I've planted fear in James's mind. It'll slow him some, perhaps, if I could only pray, truly pray... Paul stood alone now, just into the ring, clad in the fighting trunks he'd worn under his stillsuit. He held a Chris knife in his right hand. His feet were bare against the sand-gritted rock. Idaho had warned him time and again, when in doubt of your surface, bare feet are best. And there were Chinese words of instruction still in the front of his consciousness. Jameis turns to the right with his knife after a parry. It's a habit in him we've all seen, and he'll aim for the eyes to catch a blink in which to slash you, and he can fight either hand, look out for a knife shift. 
but strongest in Paul, so that he felt it with his entire body, was training and the instinctual reaction mechanism that had been hammered into him day after day, hour after hour on the practice floor. Gurney Halleck's words were there to remember. The good knife fighter thinks on point and blade and shearing guard simultaneously. The point can also cut. The blade can also stab. The shearing guard can also trap your opponent's blade. Paul glanced at the Chris knife. There was no shearing guard. Only the slim round ring of the handle with its raised lips to protect the hand. And even so he realized that he did not know the breaking tension of this blade and did not even know if it could be broken. Jameis began sidling to the right along the edge of the ring opposite Paul. Paul crouched, realizing then that he had no shield, but was trained to fighting with its subtle field around him, trained to react on defense with utmost speed while his attack would be timed to the controlled slowness necessary for penetrating the enemy's shield. In spite of constant warning from his trainers not to depend on the shield's mindless blunting of attack speed, he knew that shield awareness was part of him. Jameis called out in ritual challenge, May thy knife chip and shatter. This knife will break then, Paul thought. He cautioned himself that Jameis also was without shield, but the man wasn't trained to its use, had no shield fighter inhibitions. Paul stared across the ring at Jameis. The man's body looked like knotted whipcord on a dried skeleton. His crisp knife shone milky yellow in the light of the glow globes. Fear coursed through Paul. He felt suddenly alone and naked, standing in dull yellow light within this ring of people. Prescience had fed his knowledge with countless experiences, hinted at the strongest currents of the future and the strings of decision that guided them. But this was the real now. This was death hanging on an infinite number of minuscule mischances. Anything could tip the future here, he realized. Someone coughing in the troop of watchers, a distraction, a variation in a glow globe's brilliance, a deceptive shadow. I'm afraid, Paul told himself. And he circled warily opposite Jameis, repeating silently to himself the Bene Gesserit litany against fear. Fear is the mind-killer. It was a cool bath washing over him. He felt muscles untie themselves, become poised and ready. I'll sheath my knife in your blood, Jameis snarled. And in the middle of the last word, he pounced. Jessica saw the motion, stifled an outcry. Where the man struck, there was only empty air, and Paul stood now behind Jameis with a clear shot at the exposed back. Now, Paul, now, Jessica screamed it in her mind. Paul's motion was slowly timed, beautifully fluid, but so slow it gave Jameis the margin to twist away, backing and turning to the right. Paul withdrew, crouching low. First, you must find my blood, he said. Jessica recognized the shield fighter timing in her son, and it came over her what a two-edged thing that was. The boy's reactions were those of youth and trained to a peak these people had never seen. But the attack was trained, too, and conditioned by the necessities of penetrating a shield barrier. A shield would repel too fast a blow, admit only the slowly deceptive counter. It needed control and trickery to get through a shield. Does Paul see it? she asked herself. He must. Again, Jameis attacked. 
ink-dark eyes glaring, his body a yellow blur under the glow globes. And again Paul slipped away to return too slowly on the attack. And again. And again. Each time Paul's counterblow came an instant late. And Jessica saw a thing she hoped Jameis did not see. Paul's defensive reactions were blindingly fast, but they moved each time at the precisely correct angle they would take if a shield were helping deflect part of Jameis's blow. Is your son playing with that poor fool? Stilgar asked. He waved her to silence before she could respond. Sorry, you must remain silent. Now the two figures on the rock floor circled each other. Jameis, with knife hand held far forward and tipped up slightly. Paul crouched with knife held low. Again Jameis pounced, and this time he twisted to the right where Paul had been dodging. Instead of faking back and out, Paul met the man's knife hand on the point of his own blade. Then the boy was gone, twisting away to the left, and thankful for Chani's warning. Jameis backed into the center of the circle, rubbing his knife hand. Blood dripped from the injury for a moment, stopped. His eyes were wide and staring, two blue-black holes, studying Paul with a new wariness in the dull light of the glow globes. Ah, that one hurt, Stilgar murmured. Paul crouched at the ready and, as he had been trained to do after first blood, called out, Do you yield? Ha! Jameis cried. An angry murmur arose from the troop. Hold, Stilgar called out. The lad doesn't know our rule. Then to Paul, there can be no yielding in the Tahadi challenge. Death is the test of it. Jessica saw Paul swallow hard, and she thought, he's never killed a man like this. In the hot blood of a knife fight, can he do it? Paul circled slowly right, forced by Jameis's movement. The prescient knowledge of the time-boiling variables in this cave came back to plague him now. His new understanding told him there were too many swiftly compressed decisions in this fight for any clear channel ahead to show itself. Variable piled on variable. That was why this cave lay as a blurred nexus in his path. It was like a gigantic rock in the flood, creating maelstroms in the current around it. Have an end to it, lad. Silgar muttered, don't play with him. Paul crept farther into the ring, relying on his own edge and speed. Jameis backed now that the realization swept over him that this was no soft off-worlder in the Tahadi ring, easy prey for a Fremen Knife. Jessica saw the shadow of desperation in the man's face. Now is when he's most dangerous, she thought. Now he's desperate and can do anything. He sees that this is not like a child of his own people, but a fighting machine born and trained to it from infancy. Now the fear I planted in him has come to bloom. And she found in herself a sense of pity for Jameis, an emotion tempered by awareness of the immediate peril to her son. Jameis could do anything, any unpredictable thing, she told herself. She wondered then if Paul had glimpsed this future, if he were reliving this experience. But she saw the way her son moved, the beads of perspiration on his face and shoulders, the careful wariness visible in the flow of muscles. And for the first time she sensed, without understanding it, the uncertainty factor in Paul's gift. Paul pressed the fight now, circling but not attacking. 
He had seen the fear in his opponent. Memory of Duncan Idaho's voice flowed through Paul's awareness. When your opponent fears you, then's the moment when you give the fear its own reign. Give it the time to work on him. Let it become terror. The terrified man fights himself. Eventually, he attacks in desperation. That is the most dangerous moment, but the terrified man can be trusted usually to make a fatal mistake. You are being trained here to detect these mistakes and use them. The crowd in the cavern began to mutter. They think Paul's toying with James, Jessica thought. They think Paul's being needlessly cruel. But she sensed also the undercurrent of crowd excitement, their enjoyment of the spectacle. And she could see the pressure building up in James. The moment when it became too much for him to contain was as apparent to her as it was to James, or to Paul. Jameis leaped high, fainting and striking down with his right hand, but the hand was empty. The knife had been shifted to his left hand. Jessica gasped. But Paul had been warned by Chani. Jameis fights with either hand. And the depth of his training had taken in that trick en passant. Keep the mind on the knife and not on the hand that holds it, Gurney Halleck had told him time and again. The knife is more dangerous than the hand, and the knife can be in either hand. And Paul had seen Jameis's mistake. Bad footwork, so that it took the man a heartbeat longer to recover from his leap, which had been intended to confuse Paul and hide the knife shift. Except for the low yellow light of the glow globes and the inky eyes of the staring troop, it was similar to a session on the practice floor. Shields didn't count where the body's own movement could be used against it. Paul shifted his own knife in a blurred motion, slipped sideways and thrust upward where Jameis's chest was descending, then away to watch the man crumble. Jameis fell like a limp rag, face down, gasped once and turned his face toward Paul, then lay still on the rock floor. His dead eyes stared out like beads of dark glass. Killing with the point lacks artistry, Idaho had once told Paul. But don't let that hold your hand when the opening presents itself. The troop rushed forward, filling the ring, pushing Paul aside. They hid Jameis in a frenzy of huddling activity. Presently, a group of them hurried back into the depths of the cavern, carrying a burden wrapped in a rope. And there was no body on the rock floor. Jessica pressed through toward her son. She felt that she swam in a sea of robed and stinking backs, a throng strangely silent. Now is the terrible moment, she thought. He has killed a man in clear superiority of mind and muscle. He must not grow to enjoy such a victory. She forced herself through the last of the troop and into a small open space where two bearded Fremen were helping Paul into a stillsuit. Jessica stared at her son. Paul's eyes were bright. He breathed heavily, permitting the ministrations to his body rather than helping them. Him against Jameis and not a mark on him, one of the men muttered. Chani stood at one side, her eyes focused on Paul. Jessica saw the girl's excitement, the admiration in the elfin face. It must be done now and swiftly, Jessica thought. She compressed ultimate scorn into her voice and manner, said, Well, now, how does it feel to be a killer? Paul stiffened as though he had been struck. He met his mother's cold glare and his face darkened with a rush of blood. 
Involuntarily, he glanced toward the place on the cavern floor where Jameis had lain. Stilgar pressed through to Jessica's side, returning from the cave depths where the body of Jameis had been taken. He spoke to Paul in a bitter, controlled tone. When the time comes for you to call me out and try for my Burda, do not think you will play with me the way you played with Jameis. Jessica sensed the way her own words and Stilgar's sank into Paul, doing their harsh work on the board. The mistake these people made, it served a purpose now. She searched the faces around them as Paul was doing, seeing what he saw, admiration, yes, and fear, and in some, loathing. She looked at Stilgar, saw his fatalism, knew how the fight had seemed to him. Paul looked at his mother. You know what it was, he said. She heard the return to sanity, the remorse in his voice. Jessica swept her glance across the troop, said, Paul has never before killed a man with a naked blade. Stilgar faced her, disbelief in his face. I wasn't playing with him, Paul said. He pressed in front of his mother, straightening his robe, glanced at the dark place of Jameis's blood on the cavern floor. I did not want to kill him. Jessica saw belief come slowly to Stilgar, saw the relief in him as he tugged at his beard with a deeply veined hand. She heard muttering awareness spread through the troop. That's why you asked him to yield, Stilgar said. I see. Our ways are different. But you'll see the sense in them. I thought we'd admitted a scorpion into our midst. He hesitated, then, And I shall not call you lad, the moor. A voice from the troop called out, Needs a naming still. Stilgar nodded, tugging at his beard. I see strength in you, like the strength beneath a pillar. Again he paused, then, you shall be known among us as Usul, the base of the pillar. This is your secret name, your troop name. We of Sietch Tabor may use it, but none other may so presume. Usul. Murmuring went through the troop. Good choice, that. Strong, bring us luck. And Jessica sensed the acceptance, knowing she was included in it with her champion. She was indeed Seadina. Now, what name of manhood do you choose for us to call you openly? Stilgar asked. Paul glanced at his mother, back to Stilgar. Bits and pieces of this moment registered on his prescient memory, but he felt the differences as though they were physical, a pressure forcing him through the narrow door of the present. How do you call among you the little mouse, the mouse that jumps? Paul asked, remembering the Hop, hop of motion at Tuono Basin. He illustrated with one hand. A chuckle sounded through the troop. We call that one Muad'Dib, Stilgar said. Jessica gasped. It was the name Paul had told her, saying that the Fremen would accept them and call him thus. She felt a sudden fear of her son and for him. Paul swallowed. He felt that he played a part already played over countless times in his mind, yet 
there were differences. He could see himself perched on a dizzying summit, having experienced much and possessed of a profound store of knowledge, but all around him was abyss. And again he remembered the vision of fanatic legions following the green and black banner of the Atreides, pillaging and burning across the universe in the name of their prophet, Muad'Dib. That must not happen, he told himself. Is that the name you wish, Muad'Dib? Stilgar asked. I am an Atreides, Paul whispered. And then louder, It's not right that I give up entirely the name my father gave me. Could I be known among you as Paul Muad'Dib? You are Paul Muad'Dib, Stilgar said. And Paul thought, That was in no vision of mine. I did a different thing. But he felt that the abyss remained all around him. Again a murmuring response went through the troop as man turned to man. Wisdom with strength. Couldn't ask more. It's the legend for sure. Lisan al-Gaib. Lisan al-Gaib. I will tell you a thing about your new name, Silgar said. The choice pleases us. Muad'Dib is wise in the ways of the desert. Muad'Dib creates his own water. Muad'Dib hides from the sun and travels in the cool night. Muad'Dib is fruitful and multiplies over the land. Muad'Dib we call Instructor of Boys. That is a powerful base on which to build your life, Paul Muad'Dib, who is Usul among us. We welcome you. Stilgar touched Paul's forehead with one palm, withdrew his hand, embraced Paul and murmured, Usul. As Stilgar released him, another member of the troop embraced Paul, repeating his new troop name. And Paul was passed from embrace to embrace through the troop, hearing the voices, the shadings of tone, Usul, Usul, Usul. Already he could place some of them by name. And there was Chani, who pressed her cheek against his as she held him and said his name. Presently Paul stood again before Stilgar, who said, now you are of the Ichwan Bedwain, our brother. His face hardened and he spoke with command in his voice. And now, Paul Muad'Dib, tighten up that steel suit. He glanced at Chani. Chani, Paul Muad'Dib's nose plugs are as poor a fit I've ever seen. I thought I ordered you to see after him. I had the making still, she said. There's Jameses, of course, but enough of that. Then I'll share one of mine she said. I can make do with one until... You will not, Stilgar said. I know there are spares among us. Where are the spares? Are we a troop together or a band of savages? Hands reached out from the troop offering hard, fibrous objects. Stilgar selected four, handed them to Chani. Fit these to Usul and the Sayadina. A voice lifted from the back of the troop. What of the water still? What of the leader Johns in their pack? I know your need, Farok, Stilgar said. He glanced at Jessica. She nodded. Broach one for those that need it, Stilgar said. Watermaster, where is a watermaster? Ah, Shimum, care for the measuring of what is needed. The necessity and no more. This water is the dower property of the Sayadina and will be repaid in the Siech at field rates less pack fees. What is the repayment at field rates? Jessica asked. Ten for one. Stilgar said, 
But it's a wise rule, as you'll come to see, Stilgar said. A rustling of robes marked movement at the back of the troop as men turned to get the water. Stilgar held up a hand and there was silence. As to Jameis, he said, I order the full ceremony. Jameis was our companion and brother of the Ichwan Bedwine. There shall be no turning away without the respect due one who proved our fortune by his Tahadi challenge. I invoke the right at sunset when the dark shall cover him. Paul, hearing these words, realized that he had plunged once more into the abyss. Blind time. There was no past occupying the future in his mind, except, except he could still sense the green and black Atreides banner waving somewhere ahead, still see the jihad's bloody swords and fanatic leeches. It will not be, he told himself. I cannot let it happen. This ends this twist. Baby, oh shit. Man, like more deep. On our spice. On our spice and murder. Woo! That heady cocktail, baby. That spice and that murder. Ow! Yo, this shit crazy. Woo! Oh man, the double bill's hard, right? I like the double bill. Yo, the double bill's hot. Boom, boom. Kyla says we all won against Jamis. <laughs> Members time was cracking. Bob Osmus was cracking. I gotta chill. I had, you know, the thing where you, like, all your hairs are standing on it and you're, you're racing and shit. Also, shit was hilarious. Shit was often hilarious. Fucking Wildling King is epic. Fucking Mance Raider out there. Yo, yo, yo. Why have I not seen anyone running up on G- George R. R. Martin being like, Oi, give Frank Herbert his book back, motherfucker. Has it taken him so long to write the new one? Has he run out of dunes to pilfer? She. Why is no one talking about this? This is stuff no one's talking about. Woo, 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 woo. Yo, baby, this shit amazing. This shit full-blown amazing. And, um, yeah, that's dope. What a cool thing to do. Hey, what up, Members Times? Says, man, this is so fucking good. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
Craigie Dial says they would not let Drew Jarowski do it. Do what? I think, is that where they're finishing the first movie? The first movie is just half of the thing, isn't it? First movie's the half the ting, and I suspect they probably finished there. Maybe. Yang out. Crikey Dial says the fight was tight. Yo! I'm gonna rewind that. I'm gonna go back and check that out again. What a Kyla says, as a pleasure lurking in this lit chat. Love to the Fremen fam. Foo, foo, foo. Wait a minute. Yo, this is ridiculous. Fremen? Oh, what are they called? What's he calling me, Game of Thrones? Free folk, right? Fremen, free men. Shit, guy isn't even trying. Bloody hell, George. Yo. Ooh, D-Man says it's so hard not to read ahead. Hey, D-Man, shout out to your uh, calligraphy during that stream. Just enjoying your calligraphy. I'll be looking up occasionally and seeing mad calligraphies. Yo. Yo. Bob Artemis says the way he writes about food is how Harlequin novels write about the Wuha tank. <laughs> Yo, you boy, this is so true. You ever read one of them books? Oh man. You got, like, literally, uh, there's like four pages of just describing, like, the banquet and thing. Yo! Bob Oatsmith said, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, go watch it. Is that the one with the drawings from your boy, um, Moebius? Moebius, Moebius? Moebius. Yeah, boy. Shout out to the French in general. French comics are elite. Like, French is elite in the comics thing, because they draw them bigger. I think it's why they put all that detail in, because them shits get printed, like, twice the size of, uh... American comics, you know? They put mad detail in there. Yo. Bop, bop, bop. Yo, I'm feeling a bit trippy now, you know? That was a trippy experience. Tripped. <laughs> that whole shit was very, very intense. It was very, very brilliant. And, uh, you know, riding the musical waves and shit is very intense. And uh, the whole thing's very intense. And we did that for what? What was that? Uh, three hours. Three, okay. That's not too bad, is it? Now I'm starting to think of, like, ridiculous things to do. Like, do a whole book in a day-long stream type vibes. You'd get mad into it, you know? You'd get so into it. Also, I gotta say, my beats are the best. <laughs> I'll be playing a whole bunch of different beats and stuff, and then like I play my own, and it's like, ooh, this is elite. This is elite tier tier stuff right here by Jove. Ooh, hey, feels like it works. All right, boom, boom, boom. Let me. I gotta get out of here. I gotta go to bed and get up soon. I gotta get up and do a stream. <laughs> Yo, thank you for being here. Thank you to the supporters of the adventure. Bob Optimus, appreciate you. Benjamin Gunn, bless up. Chris Olin, bless up. Luke, bless up. Ooh. 
yeah if you want to support the wave head on over to meaningwave.com cop something oh yeah quick word up and i'll t- uh, we'll we'll put it back tomorrow we took the meaning wave uh monolith down uh you know because the sale was on and margins is too tight to be cutting 30 percent off these boils but uh yeah that we're gonna stop these uh the uh, production of them is very, very uh, labor and time intensive. Uh, and Dan Elliott uh, will not be able to do uh, very many more. Uh, so we're going to put it back up. And I think he's only got, he's got space that he could do five, I think. And then he's got to put a pause on it and do, and, um, and uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's like blood, sweat and tearing and shit making these things. They're metal, you know, this is steel. You know what I mean? So there's going to be five of these available when these come back tomorrow. All right. So if you want one of these things for Christmas, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. D-Man says monoliths be going missing everywhere. That's so real. Yeah, so if you want a monolith, there's only five. There's going to be five, and that's that. Five, that's that. So these will be back in the shop tomorrow. And there'll be five. So there. Uh, that's what's up. Hey, hey, hey. All right, cool. Yeah, go meaningwave.com. Uh, actually, I'll go put this back, back up now. I'll do it now. So if, if like, you want to jump in and get that quick, uh, then, uh, yeah, I'll I'll set it, set, it, set it off in a minute when I get off the stream. Um, also, yeah, if you want to, like, uh, support, there's a support link over there at the top right. You click the donate page, and it's got the Bitcoin and the Venmo and the Cash App and the Patreon and all them places on there. We'll be back tomorrow. I can't believe it's bloody Thursday already. What? It's bloody Thursday already. I like the way I feel I can say bloody. Like, I don't want to be cursing these days. You know what I mean? I've really, really cut down on my cussing. But I enjoy saying bloody. Bloody doesn't feel too bad. You know, bloody feels cool. Like, I don't even be saying the D word no more. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't even be damnating nothing. But I feel bloody's all right. I can't think anything bad about bloody. So I just say bloody a lot. What the bloody cripes? Oi. Uh, <laughs> we'll be here tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. CT on TWITCH. Oh, yes. We shall. We shall. What up, Crikey Dallas? Says, Buy all the stuff. Get the Jordan Peterson pants. I mean, that's a very good idea. Jordan Peterson pants. What more could someone want in this beautiful life? Uh, you know, apart from like a Dune Wave quadruple bill. Quadruple bill! I will be back next week might do another double bill I really like the double bill format you do a double bill with uh, what you call it an intermissions Um, like a proper intermission rather than this one where I was like shit you know we're going in again Uh, proper intermission like when I went to see um, what's that Quentin Tarantino movie where uh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, tries to make love to that guy's face um or successfully does. Pretty weird scene. Uh, what was that movie? Cowboy one. That had a... I saw that at the Arclight in Los Angeles. And that had an intermission. And I went out to go get more popcorn. And uh, your boy with the mullet from The Walking Dead was there looking really upset. He looked really sad. queuing up for his popcorn. I don't know what was wrong with him. I guess he, he wasn't happy about uh, Samuel L. Jackson trying to make love to that guy's face in the snow. <laughs> no, it wasn't Pulp Fiction. The really long one with the intermission. Samuel L. Jackson didn't try and make love to no one's face in the snow and fall fishing. She, I'm talking about a recent one with the, with the, with the, with the in the, you know, seven fuckers or whatever it was called. 
They're all in a hut in the in the snow. You know what I mean? And they have to like tell each other stories or some stuff. Uh, the hateful eight. Not the seven fuckers. The hateful eight. <laughs> Yo. Yeah, the hateful eight. I can't really, I, I do love that I remembered that in my head as the seven fuckers. Uh, shout out to me uh, in general. And shout out to you. And I'll see you tomorrow. Let's do it by five. Hey. And I'll go put that monolith back. Five. Five monoliths. The final countdown. Three, two, one, bye. Whoa, baby, I'll see you later, you beautiful babies. Sweet dreams.